cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, November 1st, 2011. After our brief journey into sanity for the last couple of episodes, we're going to take a hard left turn and head straight for the cliffs of insanity today. Holy smokes. You will need to take all the proper precautions for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm just warning you. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really bad things crazy bad theology being spewed out there by people who should know better, um, people who've, well, been to seminary or people who, well, some of them haven't. But uh, the point is, is that uh, there seems to be a um, a growing, growing lack of faith and trust in God's Word, a, a growing feeling that, oh, maybe God's Word isn't enough. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we need to supplement it. Maybe it's not true. And as a result of it, there's just some bad stuff going on. And, uh, well, we do the comparative work. It's politically incorrect. It requires us to speak the truth in a way that says, yeah, what that fo- person's saying or what these folks be saying, yeah, that's not that's not the, what God's Word teaches. And, uh, in fact, it teaches something very different. And then we have to prove it by actually getting into the biblical text and doing that. So, um, yeah, if you remember, was it last week or the week before we had a, we, a cup, train wreck one and train wreck two. Today's not quite the same as that. I've, uh, you know, rather than make the entire program about the train wreck, uh, you know, there, there are some, well, let's just say aftershocks of the train wreck in today's edition of fighting for the faith. And so I, that does require me to uh, play our warning because, yeah, I somebody I, I, always when I play episodes where I've got segments like what I'm doing today, I get somebody who emails me and lets me know that their life was uh, and their and their physical body was physically threatened or near harm as a result of programs like this. 
Um, it has uh, has to do with the inability to breathe properly, you know, things of that nature. So uh, here's our warning. warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. So there you go. That's our warning. You have been warned. If if you <laughs> if you are not taking the proper precautions uh, while listening to this episode of Fighting for the Faith, seat belt, helmet, uh, tinfoil pyramid hat, bendy du- bendy straws, duct tape, knee pads, and uh, stay away from all heavy uh, machinery equipment and or even weight you know, weight equipment for this edition of Fighting for the Faith. At least. For the, uh, well, I, I want to say that the sermon is any better, but the sermon isn't really from planet Mars as some of this stuff is. But anyway, so uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We, you know, I've got a segment that I'm going to be doing today entitled, Who Said It? Who Said It? It's going to be a, you know, see if you can figure out who who said this. And uh, and so we're, we're going to do that today. I've got a Patricia King update. I've <laughs> Somebody on my Facebook wall, a listener, posted probably one of the worst, absolute worst attempts I've ever seen by any church anywhere at any time attempting to be relevant. Um, And uh, it's from uh, St. Andrew's Church in Omaha. I'm I'm assuming that's Omaha, Nebraska. And I kid you not, they have been doing a series of skits, if you would. Um, the themed around Gilligan's Island, and it is some of the worst, absolutely most painful stuff I've ever seen or heard. And uh, since I'm such a terrible and uh, and and wretched sinner, I've decided that I'm going to have you share my misery by playing. <laughs> audio from one of these segments. So, uh, so we talked about Patricia King. I've got that. Um, I, if we have time today, um, I just came across a, uh, a, a, a video today of, uh, of a guy who I think may be able to give William Tapley a run for his money on the Casio. Now I may not be able, may not, may not be able to get to that today. So I, I don't want to promise that one. So, I mean, because there's so many other things that we're going to be doing today. And then, yeah, toward the end of this hour, we're going to be uh, taking a look at um, uh, Stephen Furtick's uh, blog. And uh, have you ever wondered what Stephen Furtick would do with a passage from, like, Luke? Not Luke, sorry. He has it down as Luke on his Facebook wall, but it's actually from the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Um, uh, starting at verse 33, here's what it says. And when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be called first, he must be last of all and the servant 
of all. Have you ever wondered what a guy like Stephen Furtick would do with a passage like that? Well, wonder no more. He's uh, he's blogged about it today, so we're going to uh, get his take on it, which is going to launch me into a um, a discussion of um, how how do I put this? Of uh, whether or not your pastor is a servant or is a Führer. And you're going, what? Uh, Don't get freaked out by the term. Uh, Fuhrer. A Fuhrer is, that's the German word for leader. And so, uh, yeah, stay tuned. You'll see what I'm talking about later in uh, this uh, first hour of Fighting for the Faith today. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. And I I mean a lot. And you know what? We also, uh, I'm looking at the lists here going, oh, am I going to be able to get to the Rick Warren update that I wanted to do too? Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to it all. That's that's for sure. Oh, by the way, hour number two, we're going to be looking at a Frank Santora a sermon. Uh, Frank Santora from a life, uh, not life church, but faith church in uh, Milford, Connecticut. And uh, we're going to be uh, listening to a sermon that he recently preached based on Stephen Furtick's book, Sun Stand Still. So we're going to see what, uh, what happens to uh, that theology as soon as it hits like the... Uh, the mainstream of American evangelicalism. And uh, if you were thinking that good things were going to happen when other people preached on Stephen Furtick's book, well, you may be disappointed with that, the sermon. That's all I can say. But anyway, so without any further ado, we're going to dive into the program proper. You've been warned about all the crazy stuff. And uh, with that, we're just going to have to go with it. So now I don't have any music to begin this next uh, the segment here at Fighting for the Faith, but it comes with its own music. Yeah, this is from uh, St. Andrew's United Methodist Church in Omaha. I'm assuming Omaha, Nebraska. Here we go. They're on a faith journey. If it were not for the uh, something of the uh, loving God, their spirits would be lost. Oh boy. Just gotta um, say something here. Um, I've been looking at the uh, recent statistics uh, regarding um, attendance numbers in in mainline liberal Protestant denominations, and um, in, um, well, let's just say they're not good. They're like really bad. Um, you know, the word "civ" uh, comes to mind. Uh, you know, things like. Uh, the, the, you know, the, it's like a leaky bathtub. The, the 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 bottom has been let out. And see, here's the deal. Think back, think back with me, back to when liberalism first raised its well haggard, ugly head. Uh, the thing that it promised uh, all the all these churches is is that if you bought into their relevant current hip 
theology that that was uh, compatible with the uh, current whims and wishes of the culture, that it would guarantee uh, that uh, your churches would grow. They basically, liberalism was a form of church growth theology, if you would. And and the, uh, the, the premise was that if you give in to the culture and give the culture what they want, then people are going to want to come to church. What was assumed was is that the reason why people are not coming to church is because they don't like your theology. And so if you give them the theology that they want, or if you make it relevant and consider their their felt needs, then people will want to come to church. This was the basic premise of, of modernistic, liberal, um, the Protestant theology. Um, in, and uh, what has it led to? Um, it, well, it's it's like taking a cyanide pill. It it kills your church, and so um and so here we've got a mainline liberal church that um well to be relevant to be hip that you know to try to attract people to come to church they've decided they're going to put on a series of skits. Um, based on Gilligan's Island, and uh, I, I got to warn you, the acting that you're about to hear, I don't think that um, it gets much worse than this. And here's my fear. Here, here's my fears: is that you know when things get really bad, um, you you worry about things like, um, the, well, the destructive forces being unleashed on the planet, and so. Be warned that you need to be probably in a bunker because when this is played out and the and it can be you know heard in the atmosphere, it's so bad that it's likely to unleash some kind of bizarre, earth-shattering, destructive force. Just you know, I'm warning you ahead of time. Skipper, look! What is that? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Maybe it's Superman. (laughs) No, it's a plane. A biplane, to be specific. And and it's flying upside down. Look, it's an upside down airplane. That that's the spirit of the Bronx. It must be Broadway Feldman. You wouldn't believe what a trip I had. I almost crashed. I was attacked by a giant eagle. An eagle? Oh, how dreadful. Man, I <laughs> Not as dreadful as this acting. Shot it down until I saw it was an American eagle. Runway, how did you find us again? To tell you the truth, I don't know where I am. Don't tell me you're lost again. Must be. Last time I was here, I remember singing, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And as I sang that song with you, my heart warmed. (laughs) He had a Mormon burning in his bosom, so as he was... Oh, man. (laughs) I've broken out into a cold sweat. You gave me that great send-off. I was determined to fly straight. Mm-hmm. But somehow I got off course. My airplane isn't the only thing flying upside down. The wings almost fell off. Yes. You didn't start drinking that bola bola serum again, did you? It's a wonder I got here alive instead of crashing and burning. 
I sort of wished I'd land somewhere else. Long the wrong way. I'm embarrassed and ashamed. Oh, don't be wrong way. You're among friends, and we love you. Yes. yes. I'm not the most musical person on this island, but I believe the song you just talked about has a verse, and grace will lead you home. Perhaps God grace has brought you back here wrong way. Oh, oh man. <laughs> this is one of those rare occasions where both my eyes and my ears are bleeding. Um, yeah, because <laughs> I'm watching and listening to this at the same time. You're lucky that you're not seeing it. You'll always have a place here wrong way. I'm so thankful to hear that. We believe that God is love, and Jesus came not to condemn this world, but to save it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, um, contrary to popular notion, um, this is not actually going to make people want to come to your church. Yeah, you do this kind of stuff, you will make sure, you will ensure that people will stay away from your church. This is like cultural kryptonite. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know, we, we, we navigate our way by Jesus. So it's not too late for me to be right way, Feldman? But um bump This island is all about second chances. Oh, it must be the island of Rick Warren, the mulligan theory of the atonement now at play at Gilligan's Island. And third and fourth chances. But you don't know some of the mistakes I've made. M mistakes, yeah. Yeah, that, don't worry. God's all about erasing boo-boos and mistakes. <laughs> yeah, that's why Jesus was on the cross. But God's love is greater than our biggest mistakes. But stay away from that bowl of bola syrup. <laughs> <laughs> They've even got their own canned laughter. Right way? Join us in a song, won't you? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now listen, I, 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 I hear this. Uh, one of you out there is listening to this and you are about ready to jump off a bridge. Step away from the edge of the bridge, please. You, yeah, you, Don't worry, you can get through this. If I can do it, you can do it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. <sighs> What's that sound? Oh no! See, I told you that this would re uh, unleash some kind of unholy thing of destruction upon the planet. Uh, that's. Oh no, that's Godzilla! Oh no, what are we going to do? Call the Japanese authorities. Godzilla! It's now in Kagoshima Bay. Kagoshima? Godzilla sighted at Kagoshima Bay. Oh, man. See, I knew this would happen. See, we play this really bad skit of Gilligan's Island, and now Japan itself is at risk. Godzilla has heard this, and he's come to destroy. But don't worry. The Japanese military will get him. Take that, Godzilla! Oh no, blue fire just came out of his face and blew up a destroyer. Uh, 
unfortunately, we're going to have to leave this news coverage of Godzilla attacking Kagoshima Bay in retribution for that terrible skit performed by the folks there at St. Andrews United Methodist Church. Oh, man. <sighs> yeah, uh, here, take my word on this. Um, this is not how you grow your church, because um, uh, the church was able to grow just fine. Long before Gilligan's Island came around, um, you don't need Gilligan's Island. You don't need ACDC's Highway to Hell. You don't need a big rock and roll laser light show or fireworks or to ride your horses or put on, you know, or have a NASCAR event in your sanctuary. And, and, and well, the weird thing is, is that some of those sanctuaries are big enough for that. But the, yeah, you, if the, the church grows by people being confronted with their sins and Jesus Christ and him crucified for their sins being placarded before them. Uh, what does Romans ten seventeen say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It doesn't come by Gilligan's Island. And you, you, it, the, the, the gospel doesn't need help like that. In fact, if you try to help the gospel out like that, you end up losing the gospel. So... Just something to keep in mind. Just something to keep in mind there. Um, yeah. It, it, oh man, that was that was simply horrible. And now, unfortunately, you know the evil, the destructive forces of Godzilla have been unleashed in Kagoshima Bay. I just uh, see bad things happen. You know, so not only is the church not growing there at uh, Omaha's uh, St. Andrew's Church, but now the entire uh, you know eastern coast of Japan is in is in dire dire uh, straits as a result of that terrible episode of Gilgan's Island. Okay, moving along here. Um before I ask this question, I've got to uh play something for you. Now, um if you haven't heard this week's episode of uh, The White Horse Inn, it's a very fascinating episode. Uh Michael Horton is uh, interviewing uh, Christian Smith who is a uh, former uh, evangelical now turned Roman Catholic who teaches at Notre Dame and um and talking about his latest book, and uh, Mike Horton took the opportunity to um, uh, to have a uh, well a, a, a mini debate, a, a uh, civil conversation, taking issue with uh, some of the things that Christian Smith now preaches, teaches, and confesses. And uh, good on Michael Horton. But uh, at the end of that episode, Michael Horton uh, talked about Roman Catholicism, and he pointed out something about what Roman Catholicism teaches. And I would like to play this brief clip first. And then I'm going to read something from you and ask the question, can you identify who said it? So uh, here's Michael Horton explaining something about how Roman Catholicism's uh, doctrine of justification works. Uh, here we go. There are indeed remnants of truly Orthodox, Catholic, genuinely biblical faith and practice in the Roman Catholic Church. But as a total structure, the flaws go right to the foundation. In terms of authority, Rome teaches that scripture and tradition are two tributaries of a single source of revelation. That's why the magisterium, that is the teaching office of the church with the pope at the head, can invent sacraments, forms of worship, and even dogmas that it acknowledges aren't found in the Bible. In terms of the gospel, Rome teaches that salvation is by grace alone, at the first at least, and from then on, it's a cooperative venture. As you cooperate more and more with this grace, doing good works, you hope to merit your final justification. Okay, let me play that last section again. Listen carefully. In terms of the gospel, Rome teaches that salvation is by grace alone, at the first, at least. And from then on, 
It's a cooperative venture. As you cooperate more and more with this grace, doing good works, you hope to merit your final justification. Okay, so so the, so yeah, that's kind of, yeah. The idea is this: is Roman Catholicism. Uh, you can think of it as baptism washes away original sin and any other sins that you've committed prior to baptism, and then after that, it's a cooperative effort, and uh, you, you don't want to commit any mortal sins or you know, things like that. Um, you know, after you've been baptized, and and th- you know, and see, there's it's a pretty complex system if you would, of uh, some very interesting man-made theologies. Well, the question that comes up is uh, see if you can identify who who said this. And I'll, I'll give you a hint. The person who said this is a well-known religious leader. And this well-known religious leader uh, likes to tweet. And this well-known religious leader tweeted this um, statement on Reformation Day. That would be yesterday. So here's what this well-known religious leader said. God doesn't justify us because we're righteous. He imputes righteousness to us as he justifies us. So I'm basically taking away from this tweet that this well-known religious leader is talking about some kind of progressive justification here, uh, as if, you know, God's grace is somehow infused in us, kind of fueling up the tank along the way as we need it. So let me read that again. God doesn't justify us because we are righteous, okay? He imputes righteousness to us as he justifies us. So who is the famous leader that taught that? Is that, uh, well, we'll, we'll, you know, let's all put out uh, one option. Do you think that was Pope John Paul II? If if you you know think about it for a second, I'll come back to this. So, you know, so who said it? Uh, is it Pope John Paul II that said God doesn't justify us because we're righteous, but He imputes righteousness to us as He justifies us? So so that you know we'll come back to this, but uh, you know that's where we are at the moment. Let's see what my time is looking like. Tell you what, we'll take our first break, and then when we come back, we got a Patricia King update, a Patricia King update. So uh, here, uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Ward are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren, and nice Hawaiian jet. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if your church thinks the gospel needs help, they don't understand why people really don't believe uh, the biblical message. It's not because it ain't relevant, it's because they're dead in trespasses and sins. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. Okay, now before we get into the Patricia King segment, uh, I, I again want to ask the question: Can you name the uh, the very famous religious leader who said this? That sounds a lot like Roman Catholicism. Uh, this idea of some kind of progressive justification. Um, here, here's what this religious leader said: uh, God doesn't justify us because we are righteous. He imputes righteousness to us as He justifies us yeah progressive justification weird isn't it okay so uh, so far your options are well one um uh, pope john paul ii second option uh, is it um ignatius Loyola? yeah famous counter-reformation uh, catholic is he the one who said god doesn't justify us because we're righteous he imputes righteousness to us as he Justifies us, some kind of progressive justification going on there. So, uh, is, is it uh, Pope John Paul II or is it Ignatius Loyola? Just you know, so uh, we'll come back to the question here, but we've got a Patricia King update, which then requires us to uh, well do this. Okay, so uh, Patricia King, she has a new video up on her website, xpmedia.com or extremeprophetic.com, however you want to, uh, you know, you want to look at it. But the uh, the the question at hand is, um, what exactly is she doing here? Um, the reason why I ask the question is, well, uh, well, here, let me let me play the, the beginning of this video. And as I was listening it, it, to it this morning as I was preparing for the program, it dawned on me that something didn't quite sound right in what she was saying. Anyway, here, the name of the, uh, the, name of the video is Don't Empower the Negative. Don't Empower the Negative. Uh, here's Patricia King. It's really important that you focus on the blessings of God right now because I see that there's someone who's been going through a very negative time in your life. It's like, it's like things are falling like dominoes all around you and you are in a negative framework where all you can see is all the bad stuff. But God wants you to start making a list of all the blessings, all the good things, and then praising Him for those things. Praising Him for the good things He's done in the past and start dreaming about your future. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me back the uh, the video up. I want you to hear the relevant part again before I draw the comparison. Here she is again. It's really important that you focus on the blessings of God right now because okay. I see that there's someone who's been going through a very negative time in your life. It's so you see that there's been there's somebody who's gone through a very negative time in their life. Okay, so as I was preparing for the program this morning and I was watching that, um, something came to mind that this reminded me of. I, you know, this the I see this or I see that, and I think that there's something negative in somebody's, you know, whatever. Um, and then it dawned on me. You know what this sounds like? Um, this sounds like um, 
the kind of stuff that we get from so-called psychics when they're doing psychic readings. Um, <clears throat> permit me, if you would, to uh, take a little bit of liberty here. You're going to be listening now to a little bit of audio from a video on YouTube of a gal who calls herself a psychic. Her name is Lisa Williams. She has a British accent, and she claims that she can speak to and talk with the dead and stuff like that. But what really struck me is, is the similarity between the way Lisa Williams talks and Patricia King talks. Here, listen. I'd like to welcome my next guest, Paige. Hi, how do you feel? Good. <laughs> Happy you to be sure? here. Happy. I always have a question. And my question is, is do you want to know everything? Yes. Yeah, are you sure? Yes, I do. Um, I know nothing about you. <laughs> Thanks. I've got someone who's coming in who's very apprehensive. So she claims to be hearing from a dead person. It's a gentleman, either a husband or a partner or... People were shocked about the two of you getting together. Yes, they were. Very shocked. Was there an age difference? Oh, yes. Because Were you older than him? Because mm -hmm. I feel you were a lot older than him. <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good girl. <laughs> uh-huh. Because he's laughing. I was 13 years older than my fiancé. Um, yeah, it was just supposed to be fun at first, but I fell in love with him right away. He... He wanted... He wanted the rest of his life with you. I never believed it. I know. I never believed it. So here we got uh, Lisa Williams, who is at this point playing the role of the necromancer. That, that's, that would be the correct biblical uh, terminology for it. She's speaking with and communicating with the so-called dead. Um, she's either a really good con artist or she's in touch with demons. Uh, that's what the biblical options are at this particular juncture. But, uh, you know, uh, watch her technique. I mean, listen to her technique. And then he's talking about, oh, holding his, holding something in a certain way. I, I don't know what this, but it's like I'm holding the dog lead. Um, it's what we call it in England. You call it a leash. Um, don't tell me anything. Okay. Did he work with animals? Because he keeps showing yes. me that he could. He worked. He showed me he was very in tune mm -hmm. with animals, yes. uh -huh. and he's showing me big animals, not dogs, either a cat. So he's showing me. He's showing me. He's showing me. Is it this? Is it that? I'm getting this. I'm getting that. Um. So here's the deal. As I was listening to Patricia King this morning, I immediately thought, boy, her language sounds a lot like the same kind of language and technique that we hear from necromancers, psychics, and uh, and so-called, you know, <clears throat> uh, mediums and things like that. At least, uh, listen again. It's really important that you focus on the blessings of God right now because I see that there's someone who's been going through a very negative time in your life. It's like... Mm -hmm. I see that somebody who's going through a really negative time in their life. Or a horse, because I feel like I'm grooming this horse. Yes. And he's saying that's the reason why I'm here. Yes. Uh-huh. So that's the medium, and then here's Patricia King again. 
It's really important that you focus on the blessings of God right now because I see that there's someone who's been going through a very negative time in your life. It's like it's like things are falling like dominoes all around you and you are in a negative framework where all you can see is all the bad stuff. But God wants you to start making a list of all the blessings, all the good things, and then praising him for those things, praising him for the good things he's done in the past and start dreaming about your future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't see much of a difference, like qualitatively or even um, methodologically or anything, between Patricia King and psychics and mediums. Uh, they both sound the same. And think of only the good, because you're in such a negative space right now that, that you're actually creating a cycle of curse instead of a cycle of blessing. Mm -hmm. But you can... Yeah, so yeah, because you know, you're in a cycle of curse rather than blessing. Who's Marky? Marky. Um, well, his name was Marcos. Oh, so I got the E. Okay, okay. He had been grooming horses for a living. He loved the animals. He loved his job. Like Lisa said, he was very in tune with animals. He says animals are always unpredictable. Do you understand this? Yes. He said, I shouldn't have let it happen. Like, throughout my body, I feel pain. I feel a lot of pain, like some form of kick or, or something. I felt like a jolt. He should have seen it coming. He should have. He should have seen it. Did he get kicked by the horse? Yes. Right. Okay. This horse, was it a chestnut horse? Yes. This horse was very nervous, very apprehensive. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so there's that psychic medium again and Patricia King and doing her thing, which sounds to me like the same thing. Praising him for those things, praising him for the good things he's done in the past, and start dreaming about your future and think of only the good because you're in such a negative space right now that that you're actually creating a cycle of curse instead of a cycle of blessing but you can praise your way right out of the cycle of curse and create your cycle of blessing by praising him so write down the blessings focus on the blessings praise him for the blessings and you'll praise your way right into an amazing breakthrough Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm starting to get creeped out now, um, like officially. Uh, um, I'm pretty much convinced at this point uh, that uh, Patricia King uh, is no different than a psychic or a medium. I don't think she's hearing from God the Holy Spirit. I think just like these psychics and mediums have spirit guides who guide them, um, Patricia King sounds a lot like those folks. In fact, I'm thinking that she's um, she's of the same stripe and feather as a psychic or a medium. Um, yeah, and the, how do I know this? Well, the proof's always in her theology because she never really does talk about Christ and him crucified for our sins. So, you know, we're always distracted away from other things. And so is that not what she's doing? She's somehow getting some direct revelation and doing a cold reading without somebody actually being there in the room. Okay, moving along. Yep, we're doing a Stephen Furtick update.
Sorry, I just really uh, enjoy having backup singers. Again, it's not something that I get to have happen on a regular basis, at least not enough. So uh, um, from the Stephen Verdick, uh, Stephen Verdick weblog, the uh, the name of the blog post posted today, by the way, is called Flip the Funnel. Flip the Funnel. And, uh, you know, before I uh, before I read that, um, you know, I, I got to go back to my question. Who is it that said that thing uh, who is it that said this? The the uh, the so the the statement is God doesn't justify us because we're righteous. He imputes righteousness to us as He justifies us. It's, uh, basically, sounding a lot like Roman Catholic progressive justification, if you would. So uh, our our choices so far are Ignatius Loyola and uh, Pope John Paul II. Um, third choice, third choice, uh, would this be the famous Roman Catholic mystic, uh, Thomas Merton? So those are our three choices so far. Uh, you know, again, the statement is God doesn't justify us because we're righteous. He imputes righteousness to us as he justifies. It sounds a lot like Roman Catholic progressive justification, if you would. And, uh, so that's, a, again, it's from a famous, uh, religious leader. So, uh, choices are, uh, uh, Pope John Paul II, Ignatius Loyola, or the Roman Catholic mystic uh, Thomas Merton. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you know, let's see. Let's uh, coming back now to Stephen Furtick uh, from the Stephen Furtick web blog. The uh, headline reads, "Flip the funnel, flip the funnel." And uh, I got to tell you, on this blog post, Stephen Furtick gave the wrong Bible address. It's actually Mark chapter nine, verses thirty-three through thirty-five. And on his blog, he he made a, a simple copyist error, and he put down Luke chapter nine, verses thirty-three through thirty-five. But it begins with the question, uh, the statement from that from the Gospel of Mark. When he was in the house, he asked them. What were you arguing about on the road? They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, have you ever wondered what Stephen Furtick would do with a passage like that about being a servant? I mean, because... um. It sure does seem like the seeker-driven leadership is, well, it's, um, it doesn't seem to promote a servant, you know, being a servant at, at, at all. In fact, the, the question that I think is worth asking is, um, before I even read Stephen Furtick's response, is, um, is your pastor a servant or is he a fuhrer? Now, I know the question is a little bit provocative. Why? Because when you say the word Fuhrer, the first thing that comes to your mind is a uh, is a crazy, maniacal mass murderer with a really funky mustache who spoke German and liked to scream and spit a lot. Uh, that would be Adolf Hitler. And uh, and so, but the, keep in mind, uh, the, um, the, uh, the German word Fuhrer means leader, okay? So does the Bible teach that the pastoral office is about serving 
Or does the Bible teach that the pastoral office is about being a furor, a leader? Okay, that's the question that's before us right now. But uh, tuck that question in the back of your mind as I read to you Stephen Furtick's handling of this text where Jesus tells his disciples that the first are going to be the uh, last and that if somebody wants to be first, they've got to be the servant or slave of all. Furtick writes, he says, In my experience, a lot of people use these verses to say that we shouldn't try to be great. Uh, That things like ambition, inspiring to be a leader, or wanting God to increase your platform are straight up unbiblical, not good at all. Yeah, does it sound to me like he's missing the point here? Um, Okay, we continue. When you read these verses, you can't really find that idea at all. Jesus didn't say, stop trying to be great. Oh, okay. He just said, get there by a different way. Flip the funnel. Put yourself at the bottom. That's how you'll become great. You find the same idea when you study the life of John the Baptist. It's interesting that Jesus has no problem calling John the greatest man that ever lived. If it is bad to be great, you think Jesus would avoid that terminology. But once we understand why Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man ever, it makes perfect sense. It wasn't because he was greater than Jesus. It was because... He had this attitude about Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, this is weird because, yeah, when I review Stephen Furtick's sermons, the person he preaches about is like himself. Remember that uh, video we discussed with Aaron Benziger? Uh, The Stephen Furtick uh, documentary, if you would. It's all about, well, Stephen Furtick. Uh, Stephen Furtick, you know, is like Jesus. Stephen Furtick fasted for 40 days, just like Jesus. Um, uh, Jesus had the feeding of the 5,000. Stephen Furtick, well, he dropped the 50,000. That would be the 50,000 Easter eggs. It's just weird because, it, you know, um, the story is all about Stephen Furtick. And in fact, in that video, I don't think Jesus even gets really a true honorable mention. So here he's quoting John the Baptist saying that Jesus must become greater, I must become less. <clears throat> So Furtick continues, says, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great in terms of your performance or your influence, but what you have to ask is, why do I want to be great and how and how am I going to get there? If you want to be great, be great for God's sake. If you want to be great, in a, uh, be great in a great way that makes Jesus even greater. Um, yeah, well, that would require you to actually preach about Jesus. If you want to be great, be a servant of all. If you want to be great, flip the funnel, put yourself at the bottom. Kind of weird. Okay, that's kind of weird because... Um, this isn't anything even remotely consistent with stuff that I've heard, you know, Stephen Furtick talk about and say. Let me remind you, okay? So the question now before us is, is is your pastor a servant or is he a fuhrer? Is he a leader? Okay? Believe me when I tell you, there is a big difference. But uh, let me remind you of that. Uh, here's Stephen Furtick. You showed up to church this morning. Did you show up with a bless me, feed me, make me fatter preacher? I don't intend to do a thing you say, but I'm going to listen to you. And if you dadgum say one thing I don't like, I promise I'll cross my arms and cross my eyes at you the rest of the sermon. Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their... Spiritual 
food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody. Bless somebody. Heal somebody. Serve somebody. Pray for somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week? What yeah, Jesus says, shut up. Get to work. Watch Jesus change their life, and then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus. That'll be the only thing you can think about. It'll consume you. But some people say, I wish you wouldn't preach all these topical sermons. I wish you'd just preach verse by verse through the book of Galatians so that we can understand the full propitiation of the justification by faith. No, here's what you want to do. You want to pull your fat butt up to the table and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And some of y'all even double dip because you go to three churches, you don't serve at any, and you're fat and you need to get on a treadmill and do something for Jesus. So is your pastor a servant or is your pastor a furor? the German word for leader. <clears throat> Let me just contrast this with uh, some biblical passages. Uh, the responsibilities of the office of the holy ministry. By the way, this is taken from the liturgy for the installation and ordination of pastors within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I happen to be a confessional Lutheran and a uh, member in good standing uh, within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And so um, I've seen this. Uh, I've seen this occur. You know, I've been there at the installation and ordination of uh, several pastors. And uh, so I'm going to be reading from you for you from just the biblical texts that are given for this uh, uh, for the you know ordination and installation of pastors. Hear what the Holy Scripture says concerning the responsibilities of the office of the holy ministry. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said this to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. By the way, uh, Gregory the Great commenting on this particular passage said that any pastor who refuses to feed God's sheep shows that he hates the good shepherd. That's my con that's my paraphrase, but that's the gist of what he said. Luke chapter 24 verses 46 through 47. Jesus said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to, his, uh, said to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That was from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 25. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says, Do not neglect the gift that, uh, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things and devote yourself to them. 
so that they may all see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-2. through 2. This is how one should regard us as servants or slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4-5. through 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5 through 5, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7 through 7. This is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and then fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into the disgrace and into the snare of the devil. So as I'm reading these passages that refer to the responsibilities of the office of the ministry, asking the question, is your pastor a servant, one who serves God's sheep this way, the way these passages describe, or is he a fuhrer, is he a leader who basically is immune from all criticism, calls all the shots, demands that you follow him, that you that he basically drives you and tells you what to do, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with you personally. Your job is to get behind him and his vision. Well, that's the question. Is he a servant or is he a fuhrer? You say, Peter, what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people that say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You want to talk deep? Let's go check your tithing record and see how deep you are. Deep? Deep? 
Most Christians are, uh, John Maxwell said it, most Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience anyway. What you're really saying is you want me to stand on the stage and confuse the heck out of you so you don't have to apply what I teach on Sundays. I could do that. I want more worship. You got six other days. If you were full of Jesus when you walked in here, it wouldn't matter to you how much we sang. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Our Lord gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying and building up of the body of Christ. Always some yahoo in the crowd who climbs up in this chair and they don't get it they climb up in this chair and they go feed me wait pastor pastor feed me over here and they throw a little baby fit wanting all the attention they get up in this chair oh no this is not the high chair this is the eye chair it's all about me it's all about me they sit here whining, oh, I want more, deeper, deeper worship. I want more Bible study. Feed me, feed me. Big, wimpy, soft, baby, sissy. <laughs> These people wear me out. And I talk to pastors all over the country. And they say, what do you do with the needy people? I say, the needy who don't yet know Christ, they don't know they matter to God? No, no, the needy, mature Christians who always want it deeper. Acts chapter 20. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2-4 through 4. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. I'm dead serious. See, that, you've never been told that by a pastor. That's why he only stays at the church for two years. And then he leaves. You understand that, don't you? You've seen that pattern. Oh, by the way, by the way, knowing me will get you to hell. I mean, when you get to heaven and you walk in and you go, I know Perry Noble, they're going to be like, oh, the guy on his face over in front of the Son of God? Yeah, that's awesome. Knowing me is not going to help you. Hanging out with me is not going to... It might help you feel enabled. 
But the church has never been about who knows the pastor. It's about who knows Jesus. And there's a lot of people and a lot of churches that know their pastor, but they don't know Jesus. And that's a problem. Show me one scripture reference where Jesus said, I'll die for my church so they can know the pastor. So the solution is that you don't get to know your pastor. The next section here in this um, ordination liturgy, the presiding pastor or minister addresses the pastor who's come up for ordination. Here's what it says. Dear brother in Christ, the Lord grant that you receive and keep these words in your heart so that you may be strengthened and encouraged in your labor. God gathers his church by and around his holy gospel and thereby also grants its growth and increase according to his good pleasure. That this may be done, he has established the office of the holy ministry into which you have been called by the church and are now being ordained and consecrated by prayer and the laying on of hands. In the presence of this congregation and before the Lord God, to whom you must give an account now and at the last day, I now ask you, do you acknowledge that the Lord has called you through his church into the ministry of word and sacrament? The guy says, then I do. Do you believe and confess that the canonical books of the Old and New Testament, that they are the inspired word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? And then the person acknowledges that. Do you believe and confess the three ecumenical creeds, namely the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian Creed, as faithful testimonies to the truth of the Holy Scripture? And do you reject all the errors which they condemn. Now, I'm going to point something out here. You're going to notice here that uh, that th these ordination vows require you to subscribe to the truth, that, believe that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God, and that the Bible is to be understood and interpreted a particular way. And that way is not up to the whims of the pastor. And in the Lutheran Church, you're going to see that it, that deals with, first of all, that the Bible, Old and New Testament, are the infallible, inerrant word of God, then you go to the three ecumenical creeds, and then you go to our confession. So watch what happens here. Okay, so do you believe, okay, we already got the three ecumenical creeds, so then the person says, yes, I believe and confess the three ecumenical creeds because they are in accord with the word of God. I also reject all the errors that they condemn. Then he's asked, do you confess the unaltered Augsburg Confession to be the, the true exposition of the Holy Scripture and a correct exposition of the doctrine of the Evangelical Lutheran Church? And do you confess that the apology of the Augsburg Confession, the small and large catechisms of Martin Luther, the small called articles in the treatise on the power and the primacy of the Pope and the formula of Concord, as they are contained in the book of Concord, are also in agreement with this one scriptural faith? Yes, I make these confessions my own because they are in accord with the Word of God. Got it? Okay, next, listen to the duties. Do you promise that you will perform the duties of your office in accordance with these confessions and that all your preaching and your teaching and your administration of the sacraments will be in conformity with Holy Scripture and with these confessions? Yes, I promise with the help of God. Will you faithfully instruct, listen to this, will you faithfully instruct both young and old in the chief articles of Christian doctrine? Will you forgive the sins of those who repent, and will you promise never to divulge the sins that are confessed to you? 
Will you minister faithfully to the sick and to the dying? I want to go to a church where the pastor comes visit me in the hospital. You don't, no, you don't want that. Because if I come to see you in the hospital, y'all know, it's bad. The guy behind me has the bag you're leaving the room in. Well, in my last church, the pastor will come. We'll go back to your last church. It's okay. It's perfectly fine. And will you demonstrate to the church a constant and ready ministry centered in the gospel? Will you admonish and encourage the people to a lively confidence in Christ and in holy living? I didn't like the music last Sunday. Here's the problem. You think I care. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm serious. You think I give a rip what you think about our music. I don't. You don't how you don't understand how little I care. No, seriously. Because we have Lee McDermott and we have Tom um, in Greenville and we have Sam and Florence who pray and seek the Lord for weeks, even months, over what songs should be sang. And then you're going to show up after a three to four minute deal and you're going like, I don't like the show. I don't care. Okay, so obviously what I was doing there was foiling. I was playing for you. Well, not playing, but reading for you the scripture passages that deal with the office of the ministry, the responsibilities of the pastor, as well as the ordination vows of a of a confessional Lutheran pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I was foiling against that statements from Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, and uh, Mark Beeson. Okay, and obviously they didn't sound anything like the biblical passages that I was reading. Now I'm going to do something that is going to uh, it's going to rankle some people, and um, I'm not doing this for shock value. What I want you to do, we're asking the question: Is your pastor a servant, or is he a fuhrer? Is he a leader? Okay, that's what, and so to to. Uh, look at this a little bit more carefully. I need another reference point. And the reference point I'm picking, I'm not picking it on purpose to be um, provocative. I want you to ask yourself this question. Honestly, who do these seeker-driven Führers, leaders, sound like? Do they sound like the biblical passages that I just read and that they're that they're conducting their ministry according to you know time honored ordination vows these are vows that go way 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 back okay or do they sound more like um well hate to put it this way fascist leaders okay and uh, I'm going to pick a particularly repugnant group. The reason why is because uh, there was a particular fascist party that was known for their obsession with leadership. They even had a term for it, and that would be the Nazi party. Now, I, I want to make something perfectly clear here. I am not, not at all saying that these pastors are Nazis. That is a repugnant thought, Okay. Um, I've spoken with Nazis, and you know, and what I mean by that are li- living neo Nazis. Okay, and I got to make something very clear up front. When you talk with a neo Nazi, somebody who who wants to follow in the footsteps of the German Nazi Party of the 30s and and uh, World War II, 
Okay. One of the things that they will constantly talk about is the blood and the land and and they start getting into ethnic issues. Okay. Um that that's not what's going on here, and that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. You and you have to understand this about fascism. You gotta get this in your head. Is that there are different types, okay? The one thing they all have in common is the emphasis on the community. How they define community is different, okay? The Nazis defined community according to blood. They were building an Aryan race that was tied to the land and to the blood. That's what they constantly referred to. That was only one manifestation of this type of thinking. But uh, here's the deal. You need to put all of that aside. You need to put put that into a box. That's a Nazi phenomenon. However, what wasn't a particular Nazi phenomenon is their understanding of leadership. This is kind of like uh, something that all totalitarian fascist dictators understood. And the German term for it, by the way, was the Führer Prinzip, okay, or the Führer Principle, the leadership principle and we learned something about this from the uh, Nuremberg war trials the the Nazi war trials uh, that occurred in 1946 in Nuremberg Germany in particular i'm going to take a look at the transcript from day number 84 where the uh, uh, the uh, united states prosecuting attorney justice jackson is uh, is cross examining Hermann Goering, okay, who was uh, literally like, you know, one of the top, top, top guys right under Hitler, okay? And in this cross-examination, they're going to talk about the Fuhrer Prinzip. Now, here's the purpose of this uh, of this little historical lesson. Who do, do these seeker-driven leaders sound more like? The biblical passages that we've been reading, or do they sound more akin to people who are following the Fuhrer Prinzip, okay? Let me read. This is from the uh, Nuremberg War Trials, uh, Nuremberg Tribunal, day number 84, Chief Justice, at not Chief Justice, but Justice Jackson asking the question to get, uh, Hermann Goering, you are perhaps aware that you are the only living man who can expound to us the true purposes of the Nazi party and the inner workings of its leadership. Goering, I am perfectly aware of that. Justice Jackson, you, from the very beginning, together with those who were associated with you, intended to overthrow, and later, later you did overthrow the Weimar Republic. Okay, now I'm going to pause here for a second. Weimar Republic, patchwork democracy put together uh, after World War One in Germany. Okay, so uh, that this is so this is a democratic republic. Established in Germany after World War One. Okay. Democracy. Okay. Gehring. Okay, so the question is uh, you were from the beginning, you were trying to associate, you intended to overthrow and later did overthrow the Weimar Republic. Gehring's answer that was, as far as I'm concerned, my firm intention. Justice Jackson. Now, and upon coming to power, you immediately abolished parliamentary government in Germany. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. Seeker-driven churches, they get rid of voters' assemblies and and voters' meetings and things like that. Democracy uh, in seeker-driven churches it does not exist. Um, instead, they put in their leaders. Okay, I'm just I'm pointing this out because I see that there is a similarity here that is uncanny. Anyway. 
So upon coming to power, you immediately abolished parliamentary government in Germany. That was Justice Jackson asking Gehring answers. Well, we found it to be no longer necessary. Also, I should like to emphasize the fact that uh, we were moreover the strongest parliamentary party and had the majority. But you are correct when you say that parliamentary procedure was done away with because the various parties were disbanded and they were forbidden. Justice Jackson. You established what was called the leadership principle or the Fuhrer Princip, which you have described as a system under which authority existed only at the top and it passed downwards and is imposed on the people below. Is that correct? Gehring. In order to avoid any misunderstanding, I should like once more to explain the idea briefly, as I understand it. In German parliamentary procedure, in the past, responsibility rested with the highest officials, who were responsible for carrying out the anonymous wishes of the majorities, and it was they who exercised the authority. So here Goering is talking about, in democracy, the job of elected officials was to carry out the wishes of the majority. Okay, That's what happens in a democracy. <clears throat> now listen to this. In the leadership principle, or the Fuhrer Princip, we sought to reverse the direction. That is, the authority existed at the top, and it passed downwards while the responsibility began at the bottom and passed upwards. Okay, so the responsibility sits at the top, the authority sits at the top, and it passes downwards. The responsibility for the wishes of the guy at the top begin at the bottom and pass upwards. Okay, Justice Jackson. In other words, you did not believe in and did not permit government as we call it by consent of the governed, in which the people, through their representatives, were the source of power and authority. Gehring, well, that's not entirely correct. We repeatedly called on people to express unequivocally and clearly what they thought of our system, only it was in a different way from that previous adopted from the system in practice in other countries. We chose the way of a so-called... Uh, plebiscite. We also took the point of view that even a government founded on the leadership principle could maintain itself only if it was pass, uh, ba based in some way on the confidence of the people. If it no longer had such confidence, then it would have to rule with bayonets. And the Fuhrer was always of the opinion that was impossible in the long run to rule, ag uh, to rule against the will of the people. Chief Justice Jackson, but you did not permit the election of those who should act with authority by the people, but they were always designated from the top downward continuously, were they not? Well, quite right. The people were merely to acknowledge the authority of the Fuhrer, or, at le or, or let, let us say, to declare themselves in agreement with the Fuhrer. If they gave the fewer their confidence, then it was their concern to exercise the other functions. Thus, not the individual persons were to be selected according to the will of people, but solely the leadership itself. Okay, now, so you get what's going on here. Using the Fuhrer Princip or the leadership principle, authority to rule and to lead is at the top. 
Okay, the decisions are made at the top. The responsibility of the people at the bottom is to fulfill the will and the wishes of the Fuhrer. Okay, now I want you now to, knowing this, ask yourself the question again. Are these seeker-driven pastors, are they servants in the way that you heard from God's word in the passages that I read and in the ordination vows taken that the pastors have taken for years and years and years and years, decades and millennia? Or are they closer to what you heard Hermann Goering describing in the Fuhrer Princip? Okay. To help you with this a little bit more, I'm going to play for you again Eric Dykstra's view in his vision-casting sermon that he gave, if you can call it a sermon, it's more like a table talk discussion, and ask yourself this question. And keep in mind, Eric Dykstra is publicly has publicly affirmed that he is a student and learner of his leadership philosophies from men like Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, and others, okay? So he's in this. So the question is, is this the servant job of a pastor described in Scripture, or is this really very similar to the concept of the Fuhrer Princip, otherwise known as the Leadership Principle? Here's Eric Dykstra. The four of us are going to walk through the 18 major values of the church. We're going to go through them really, really fast. It's going to pop through 18 values of the church. Now, in telling you these values, here's what you got to know. This is the code of the crossing church. Stick to the code. We've, yeah, we're going to stick to the code. <laughs> that's what makes us successful. That, that's what, why God's hand of favor and blessing is on this church, is we stick to the code. And we're going to keep sticking to the code. We've got some beliefs, but we also got a code. We want you to know what the code of the crossing church is. There are 18 of them, first and foremost. We are united under the visionary. Now, the visionary here is Eric. The crossing is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Eric. Yeah. And we will aggressively defend that vision. Now, what does that mean, you aggressively defend that? That means that we do church the way he wants us to do it. And me as a campus pastor, I can't go up to Zimmerman and decide that I'm going to preach on Sunday because that's not the vision that we have for this church that God gave to Eric. Mm -hmm. And we defend that when people go, well, maybe we should do it this way. And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. God gave Eric this vision. We do it this way. Because we don't want to argue with God, basically. We don't want to be like, you know, Eric's not God. We're not saying Eric's God. He's not God. Not God. But he's got a vision from God, and we have decided with our lives that we're going to follow that vision, mm -hmm. and we're going to stick to that. And if we ever just decide that we don't want to be a part of that vision, then we can go find a church and serve somewhere else. And that's, that's okay. We're not telling anybody that they have to unite under this vision that, that Eric got from God. You can... Do whatever you want. But we think that it's a really cool vision. We're on board with it. And we're going to defend it. And we're going to stick to it. Again, here's Hermann Goering from the Nuremberg Trials in 1946. Describing and clarifying what the Fuhrer Princip is. In order to avoid any misunderstanding, I should like once more to explain the idea briefly as I understand it. In German parliamentary procedure, in the past, responsibility rested with the highest officials who were responsible for carrying out the anonymous wishes of the majorities. 
and it was they who exercised the authority. In the leadership principle, we sought to reverse the direction. That is, the authority existed at the top, and it passed downwards, while the responsibility began at the bottom, and it passed upwards. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is, isn't is Eric Dykstra, Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, and all these other seeker-driven pastors, isn't their leadership model, their fearship model, very similar in its basic philosophy to the Führer Princip? used by the European fascists. The authority exists at the top, passes downward, while the responsibility for carrying out the wishes of the Fuhrer begin at the bottom and pass upwards. So I ask the question. You've heard the comparative. You've heard the biblical passages that lay out the responsibilities and duties of a pastor and show clearly that the job of pastor is a servant job, to serve Christ's sheep, to feed them, to protect them from false teachers, to give them God's word and give them the sacraments, to care for them, to visit them in the hospital, to care for the young and the old. You heard all of that. Do these seeker-driven guys sound anything like that? Or do they sound more like what we heard from the European totalitarian guys and their leadership principle where the authority exists on the t at the top? They've received the vision from God. They cast the vision. It's the job of the people to get behind the leader and make that vision come about. The responsibility to fulfill the vision go starts at the bottom the responsibility and the authority to cast the vision begins at the top. So are these seeker-driven guys really pastors? Or are they Führers? I know it's a provocative question. But that's the right question to be asking. Because I don't hear these guys as being servants. And when Stephen Furtick talks about that verse... The thing he, about you know Jesus saying that the greatest among you will be your servant, his emphasis, well, you could still be great. It just, you just have to get there a different way. Mm -hmm. That coming from a guy whose church, well, they've got their own code, and he's the vision-casting guy there, and they've got their own code too. And in their code, point number four at Elevation Church, it says, We are united under one vision. Elevation is built on the vision that God gave Pastor Stephen, and we will aggressively defend our unity and that vision. So is your pastor a pastor and a servant, or is he a fuhrer, a leader? Believe me when I tell you, as somebody who has a master's degree in leadership, that's right, I have a master's degree in business administration and the emphasis of my master's degree is leadership. Leadership 
and service or being a servant are two completely different things. The pastor is to serve. He isn't called to lead the way these guys are putting it. So again, is your pastor a servant or is he a fuhrer? Makes a difference of the whole world. In fact, in the future, I'm seriously tempted to not refer to the seeker-driven guys as pastors. I may just begin to use the word Fuhrer to continue to make the point. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Or you follow me on Facebook. Oh, you got it all. Anyway, uh, I'll answer the question as to who was that, that leader making that statement on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. I promise during the sermon I'll answer the question as to who is the uh, Christian leader who sent out that tweet that sounds like progressive justification. Sounds so much like Roman Catholicism. Stay tuned. I'll talk about it shortly. Let's uh, cue up the sermon review music, though, and uh, we're going to get into our sermon review here. We're going to be listening to a sermon that's, well, heavily influenced by Stephen Furtick's ideas. Here we go.
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Faith Church in New Milford, Connecticut. Fuhrer Frank Centora presiding. Again, keep in mind the word Fuhrer is simply the German word for leader. I don't think he's much of a pastor, that's for sure. Not much of a servant. The name of the uh, sermon is 13 Audacious Words. 13 Audacious Words. Yeah, well, that tells you something. Yeah, this is from their sermon series on Sun Stand Still. And this shows you what happens when um, Stephen Furtick's bad theology and misreading of the book of Joshua filters down into the church, or at least into evangelicalism. All right, I'm going to kill the music here. And uh, so without any further ado, here is Fuhrer Frank Centora. He's a leader. I'm not, I don't think he's much of a servant. And his sermon entitled 13 Audacious Words. Here we go. This new series entitled Sun Stand Still. And some of you may have no idea what that means, but you'll know before you leave today. In any case, I want to begin by sharing with you a little story. It's a story that I've shared before, but it's a, it's a powerful story. It's a story about a teen mother who became pregnant when she was 17 years old. And she was white and the, the, the father was black, and so that wasn't really looked upon too well in the town she grew up in. It was an Iowa town back in the early 70s, and people kind of frowned on that whole thing. Matter of fact, her parents gave her an ultimatum. They said, either abort the baby or get out of our house. She chose to keep the baby. She wound up stranded and destitute on the streets of San Diego, eight months pregnant and addicted to drugs. While she was on the streets, a lady walked by and began to talk to her about the love and forgiveness of Almighty God. That day she made a decision for Jesus Christ. The lady gave her a Bible and she began to thumb through the Bible. She had no idea please. what the Bible had to say, but everywhere she turned, she'd see the please, name Israel. Please note, we're not starting in the Bible. We're starting with a story. Israel, Israel, Israel. This lady was a concert pianist. She was a promising concert pianist as a, uh, as a teenager. She saw this name Israel over and over again, and she said to God, she didn't know nothing about God. She was just a new believer. She said to God, God, I'm not sure if you'll even hear this prayer, but here's what I want you to do. I'm going to dedicate this baby to you and give this baby to you. I'm asking you to do great things in this baby's life. Well, that mother had the baby and passed on her musical genius to that baby. That baby grew up and could play almost any instrument, piano, guitar, bass, drums, whatever, would write songs and worship songs that just declared the goodness of God. As a teenager, they formed a band. This, this baby who grew up formed a band, and God began to open doors. This person has eventually gone on right now in our day and age to win Grammy Awards and is known worldwide as the leading worshiper in the world, if you will. His name is Israel Houghton. All because a mother dared to pray a prayer. In this series, we're going to be talking about praying impossible things, asking God to do amazing things in your life. I'm not sure if these type of testimonies affect you the way they affect me, but when I hear these types of testimonies, they inspire me, they move me, they motivate me. 
They give me hope. They charge my faith. They energize me. And, and the reason is because if you ever know what, what it's like to experience God in a, in a moment, it just, it just moves you beyond description. Matter of fact, one of the moments that will always stand out to me is the moment that we had our first service here in this church. I mean, in the months leading up to that, you know, it was one of those things that was, um, you know, a struggle. I mean, it was a big endeavor. It was a huge undertaking. New England has never seen, uh, before that particular time, and really since, a church that cost $17 million to build and put up. And people would tell me all the time, you know, why are you doing that? You're going to fall flat on your face. New England can't handle a church of that magnitude. It's never seen one. I mean, it's just not common in this area. And I just kept believing God and believing God. But one of the things that, that always stuck in my, in my stomach was, I, I wonder if more people are going to show up than just those who attend our current space. Because our current space, we had about six or 700 people who came to that current space. And I said, if we build a, a church like this, is going to be need more than six or seven hundred people to support a place like that. Well, anyway, we led up to the day that we had the grand opening service, and I was back in my office about 15 minutes before the service. Brother Alvin Slaughter was with me. He was here that day, and I just kept telling him, gee, I'm just so nervous about this, Alvin. I don't know what it's going to be like, and I peeked out about 15 minutes before the service. I peeked out. There was nobody there. Kind of looked like Kind of this, you know. We separate so many of our services, and the one that's really packed is the 11 o'clock, but if we put all of our services together, we don't have enough room for everybody. And it kind of looked like this, and we were having one service, and I, and I went back in the office, and I said, dear God, I said, this, this, I hope this thing doesn't flop. And uh, so then I kind of just waited back in the office. I figured I'd give it about 10 minutes after the service before I came out again, because, you know, church folks never show up on time for church, right? And so I figured maybe everybody's just, you know, doing the usual thing. They're late. And so um, I waited until about then. And by the time that I came out here, there was standing room only. We had to put up chairs and everything like that. And in that moment, I was overwhelmed by the faithfulness of Almighty God. And I couldn't control it. I just began to cry and just inside there was this, this, this gratefulness for everything that God had done. And I'm not sure if you've ever had a moment like that where God just wows you where God just blows you away, where the truth of who he is just all of a sudden amazes you, where you get pushed to that place where you kind of feel like the apostles did when they were in the boat and the storm came, you know, over them all of a sudden. And uh, Jesus woke up from a slumber and a sleep and he just looked at the storm and he said, peace be still and everything calmed. And they looked at Jesus and they were kind of like, whoa, man, look at that. What kind of guy is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. You have those moments in your life where you realize that the God that we serve is a God who is capable of doing the extraordinary, where it really becomes a fact in your spirit, in your soul, that there truly is nothing that is too difficult for Almighty God. And really, that's what this series is all about. It's all about inspiring you and pushing you to that place to begin to see God like that. And when we hear testimonies about the faithfulness of God, they should excite us because God is no respecter of persons. Okay, now I'm going to stop right here. We are a few minutes into the sermon. We're, you know, about five minutes, 49 seconds. So far, nothing that would be alarming. We're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. That's what he's saying. Okay, yeah, I believe God is faithful. And I believe that he is powerful. The God of the scriptures, the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures and God's word, he spoke the world into existence in six days. 
powerful. This God bought the church with his own blood, rose again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Powerful. Yes, he does what to humans is impossible, but not what's impossible to God. So, okay, yeah, I'm with you so far, Frank. But pay attention. We're gonna we're gonna take a hard turn here in a minute. If God will do it for one, God will do it for anybody. God doesn't just give you know the amazing, improbable things to the special and you know the titled and the people who are real spiritual. No, God will give or do the impossible for anybody that dares to ask Him to do it. But here's the thing: if we're honest. Most- uh, wait a second. Um, God's going to do the impossible for anyone who would dare ask him to do it? Notice the contingencies going on here. Now we've, we, okay, we're talking about the faithfulness of God. Doesn't sound like we're, we're talking about that anymore. Something else has come in. Apparently the faithfulness of you. Most of us will have to admit that our prayers are primitive. They're puny. They're pathetic. In fact, they're downright insulting to God when we measure them against his power and his majesty. Uh, Whoa, whoa. Our prayers are, compared to God's majesty, makes them repugnant and there's something wrong with, there's something wrong with our prayers? Hmm. Now we've got a problem. Now we've got a the we will we've got a big problem because when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, "Lord, teach us to pray," Jesus said, "When you pray, say." Okay. Now, so understand who Jesus is. Um, Jesus is the one true God, God, the second person of the Trinity. In human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, as the Nicene Creed says, uh, he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He was begotten, not made. Okay, He's of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So this is who Jesus is. Okay, So when it comes to um, an authority on prayer, there is no greater authority than Jesus, okay? So Jesus says, when you pray, he says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners. This is Matthew chapter 6, by the way. Um, that when they are, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. So when Jesus not only tells us how to pray, he tells us, listen, okay, don't go out there and pray these big prayers in front of everybody. Go and, you know, do do your praying in secret because your God, God, the father is in secret and he's, you know, and so when you pray, he says, uh, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven 
those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay. This prayer, by the way, is also repeated in other sections, in other Gospels. And uh, so when the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, this is how he taught them to pray. Now, um, let me back up the audio on this because there's a problem here. Now we've got a problem because we're not hearing the scriptures being taught. We're hearing Frank Centora's subjective opinions and ideas, not what the Bible teaches regarding prayer and definitely not what Jesus taught. I'm backing up the audio just a little bit. Hear this again. Anybody that dares to ask him to do it. But here's the thing. If we're honest, most of us will have to admit that our prayers are primitive. They're puny. They're pathetic. In fact, they're downright insulting to God when we measure them against his power and his majesty. So God is insulted by our puny prayers when compared to his majesty and his power. Hmm. That's weird. Um, okay, let, so let, let, well, let's take a look. So Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation. Hmm. Seems kind of puny, doesn't it? Compared to his majesty and his power. Hmm. Apparently the, uh, the Jesus's uh, way of teaching us to pray well, therefore, it must be insulting to God. Right? Yeah, there's the, there's a huge problem here. Now, I mean, because this guy isn't teaching what the scriptures teach, nor is he teaching us how to pray as our Lord taught us to pray. Do you think that Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer? That's what we call it. He taught us to pray this day because every time we pray it, he wanted us to insult God and his majesty and his power so that we would invoke his wrath for praying such puny prayers? Or do you think the reason why Jesus taught us to pray this way is because this is truly how God wants us to pray, how our Father in heaven wants us to pray? Because you'll notice in Matthew chapter 6, he made, Jesus made a point of don't pray like the Gentiles do. That's not right. Okay, and when you pray, don't do it this way—the way the religious leaders do it, so you know that everyone could see that they're being holy. No, 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 do it in secret. And when you pray, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask Him. But when you pray, say these things, and then Jesus then lists off kind of a litany of stuff that, um, well, part part of it here is, um, wow, pretty puny. Praying for daily bread, praying for forgiveness of sins and praying that God would lead us not into temptation, but would deliver us from the evil one. And yet Frank Centora says, if we're honest, our puny prayers are insulting to God based upon his majesty and power. Hmm. He's not teaching what the scriptures teach, but he is teaching Stephen Furtick's false theology. Are you beginning to see why it's false? I mean, think of some of the things that, that we struggle to believe that God will do for us as if God, you know, somehow is incapable. The fact of the matter is that God is going to speak to us in this series and kind of pop the cork on our faith and, and, and enable him, empower him, if you will, to release the fullness of what he wants to do in our lives. As a matter of fact, when I read the scriptures, I almost see God begging us 
to ask him to do the impossible. I know that's not really. So he, okay. <laughs> now, can I point out the obvious here? What you're going to hear next is absolutely insulting. His char- his characterization of God because it's nowhere taught in Scripture. Listen to this. It's not flattering. I know that's not a picture that most of us would think of God. God begging us to do something like as if God would beg us to do anything. But as you read the Scriptures, you almost get the sense that God is begging us. Almost get the sense. It's not taught in any particular text, but don't let that get in the way. No, you never let the Bible get in the way of a good, made-up, subjective theology. Never, never, never. So you just make some kind of a reference to that. It's not in the Bible, but it sure does seem like it's there right in the subtext. It's as if God is, what? What's what's, What's God doing? To ask him for big things. Let me give you a few scriptures. Psalm 2, verse 8. So he says, he says, ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Can, can you almost hear God begging? Ask, please, please ask. Come on. I, I want to do something big in your life. But you've got to ask me. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask. And it will be given you. Seek, please, 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 please. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. John 14, 3. I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for any... Mm-hmm. John, hang on a second here. John 14.3. I, I just want to... Uh, <clears throat> mm-hmm. Okay, I just want to make sure we got this in, 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 in our uh, data for the sermon review. John 14, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. Hmm, okay, maybe he's just, you know, maybe I got the wrong address. I'll keep, I'll keep looking, though. We continue. Anything in my name, and I'll do it. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call on to me. It's almost as if God's got a little please at the end of that. Call on to me. Please call on to me, and I will answer thee and show you great and mighty things. And one version says, difficult things that you know not. And then James 4, 2 says, you have not. Here it is. It's John fourteen thirteen. Sorry, I had the wrong address. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I'm going to point something out here. This is not saying that all you have to do is tack on the uh, the idea that, oh, in Jesus' name, I want a Mercedes-Benz. In Jesus' name, da-da, 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 you've said the magic words, you now want a Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, that's not what that means. Um, the idea here is when you're asking it in his name, you're asking it according to his will, understanding that he is God. Just want to point that out. Cause you ask not. I mean, when you put the, the whole puzzle together, all of these scriptures together, it, it's not a stretch to say God's almost begging us. Please ask me for something. Mm, yeah, God's begging us. Please, oh, please. I can't do anything until you ask me. I'm so powerless until you ask. Oh, please ask me. That's in line with my ability that's in line with my power please ask me to do something big ask me to do something that's impossible for you because if it's impossible for you it's just the right side or size for me i know it's not flattering to think of god this way but get that picture in your mind no i won't because that's not what's revealed about god in scripture 
Listen, you don't read some kind of subtext in the biblical text to come up with something about God. What God has revealed about himself, well, to borrow a phrase from the uh, Calvinist, is that he's sovereign. God is not sitting up in heaven asking you to tap him so that he can come in and be your wrestling partner. You know, sitting at, you know, you, you, you all seen the uh, the fake wrestling, you know, the, the entertaining wrestling, you know, and so you you, you got the team, uh, you know, uh, matches, you know, where you got two guys against two guys, and so you got one guy in the ring and the other guy is out at the edge of the ring, and see that would be like God. See God, he, uh, you know, and so he's ready to come in and fight your battle for you, but you know, you got, you know, so but you got to tag him. And he says, "Oh, please!" He's reaching out his hands. Please, just tag me, tag me, please! I want to, I want in. I'll, 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 I'll whip that guy for you. I can do the impossible. Just tag me, please. Yeah, no, no. Jesus isn't your wingman. Sorry. By the way, the the other verse I want to get into the record here before we get too far is First uh, John chapter five, verse fourteen. Here's what it says: "And this, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him." That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God is in the driver's seat, not us. He's not begging us for anything. He's not asking us for anything. And he's not powerlessly sitting on his throne, wringing his hands, waiting for us to do anything. When we come to him, Jesus made it clear he already knows your needs before you ask him. And when you pray, here's how you're to pray. And John says, and this is our confidence that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The other part of that, this sermon is, it's really going to make it sound like, um, God's going to hear you and do whatever your will is. This is backwards, way backwards. God wants you to stretch. God wants you to go beyond the, 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 you know, give us this day our daily bread type prayer. I know it's the our. Man. You got a verse for that, um, Mr. Santora? I mean, you just spoke for God. I'm going to back up the audio because that is that bad. My power, please ask me to do something big. Ask me to do something that's impossible for you because if it's impossible for you, it's just the right side or size for me. I know it's not flattering to think of God this way, but get that picture in your mind. God wants you to stretch God wants you to go beyond the, 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 you know, give us this day our daily bread type prayer. Mm, you got a verse that says that? Don't you think that if God wants us to go beyond the give us this day our daily bread prayer, that he wouldn't have given us the our father to pray every single day? Where did you get this information? Where in the Bible does it say God is expecting and wanting you to get beyond the Our Father? 
I know it's the Our Father, and I know Jesus gave it as a model of prayer, but, but God wants us to go beyond just the basic necessity. God wants us to press into and tap into the fact that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. But I got to warn you, this type of kind of praying, this type of, of, of asking takes audacious faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. So uh, do you have a passage that says that, number one, God wants us to go beyond the praying of the Our Father to this other level? And can you please show me where it says in Scripture that God really wants us to have audacious faith? By the way, if you have a um, your, your uh, access to the Internet, uh, one of my favorite sites to go to uh, when I'm looking up the definition of words is m-w.com. That's the website for the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary online. Audacious is a one of the words there. And um, let me read for you the definition of the word audacious. Okay, definition number one. Intrepidly, that means daring or adventurous, an audacious mountain climber. B, reckless bold, or rash. Two, contemptuous of law or religion or decorum, marked by originality and verve. Okay, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, what do you mean by audacious here? That I'm reckless or that I'm bold? Are you asking me to be contemptuous of the law or religion or decorum or to be insolent? Or do you want my 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 uh, my faith to be original and have verve and dash? What exactly do you mean? Where in the Bible is the word audacious used as a modifier of the word or the noun for faith? Here you're saying in order for God to do these this huge bold uh, thing, you know, this uh, that I've got to have audacious faith. You got any verses that say that I have to have audacious faith? I don't recall any passages that say that I have to have audacious faith. Not one. Somebody said, well, what's audacious faith, Pastor? It's, it's faith that is daring, faith that is bold, faith that is fearless to ask God to do the impossible. Now, the word impossible is interesting, and it, it really blows this definition up. If we uh, So basically, this isn't a sermon about God's faithfulness. This is a sermon about your audacity. Big difference. By the way, um, I promised you all I would do this, and uh, you know I've got to make good on my promise, and that is I would tell you the answer to the question, who is it that said that thing that I kept pointing to? Who was it that said these words? <clears throat> God doesn't justify us because we're righteous. He imputes his righteousness to us as he justifies us. You know, kind of implying some kind of progressive justification scheme here. Infused grace, if you would. Infused righteousness. The answer to the question, by the way, the options thus far were... Um, Pope John Paul II, uh, Ignatius Loyola... Um, and, um, Thomas Merton. And, uh, it's, the answer to the question is none of the above. Actually, that was a tweet sent out by Rick Warren, uh, yesterday for, um, <clears throat> Reformation Day. So apparently teaching, uh, progressive justification. God 
doesn't justify us because we're righteous. He imputes righteousness to us as he justifies us, which doesn't make any sense, by the way. Um, justification means to be declared righteous. Uh, we're not declared. Uh, the declaration isn't spread out over our lifetime. <laughs> like, no, I mean... This is forensic righteousness. This is righteousness that we are declared to have as it's given to us. Boom, we have it. Uh, when we were brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins, the uh, the declaration has already occurred. So uh, Christians are referred to those who are justified, not who are uh, going through the process of justification. Yeah, You get what I'm saying. Anyway, we continue with the sermon. We kind of redefine the word impossible. It means anything that is not ordinary. Anything that is not ordinary. So audacious faith is when we're bold, when we're, when we're fearless, when we, we have this, this daring conviction in our soul and in our spirit to ask God to do things that are not ordinary. When's the last time you asked God to do something that wasn't ordinary? Most of our prayers are just... So we're redefining the word impossible to things that aren't ordinary. Okay. So that could be, I mean, it's things that are not ordinary. The Cubs, Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. Not ordinary. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there audaciously praying for that, though. It's regular. They're really ordinary. God, help me on my job today. You really threw a big one on God there. I was really something that blew him away. God, can... Can you be with me today? As if God's gone anywhere. Didn't he say he'd be with you even until the ends of the earth? God, I, I, I need your God to, to, to help me do good on my, my job. I mean, that's all right to pray that stuff, but it's just ordinary. It's just regular stuff. Yeah, that's just ordinary. See, God, the God that Frank Santora believes in um, apparently has written a different Bible because none of this information that he's getting, getting is actually in the older New Testament. But the God he believes in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop praying for the ordinary and get cracking with the the impossible stuff. You know, give me give me some muscles to flex, or else. Everybody prays stuff like that. God is asking us to go beyond the everyday, to go beyond the ordinary. Uh, okay, God is asking us. God is asking us. Okay, you're speaking for God here now, um, Frank. You got any passages that say that God is asking us to go beyond the ordinary? Got any of them? One. You know, anything that says anything even remotely like this. To begin to ask him for what the Bible calls or what I'm describing as a sun stand still type of prayer. Mm. By the way, the uh, sun stand still story recorded for us in the book of Joshua um, occurred long before the life of Jesus. If Jesus intended for us to be praying sun stand still prayers, don't you think he would have told us to pray them when the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray? Don't you think if God wanted us to get beyond the ordinary, to get beyond the mundane stuff, you know, like praying for our daily bread and praying for forgiveness and things like that, that he, Jesus would have said, okay, if you really want a good model for prayer that really shows audacious faith, well, then you go to Joshua and you look at that sun stand still prayer. That'll, that's how I want you to pray. But he didn't do that. How come? Go to Joshua chapter number 10. Joshua chapter number 10, as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of the backdrop to what's happening as we approach this chapter in the Bible. Joshua chapter number 10. Um, 
As many of you know, Joshua took over as Israel's leader for Moses. And uh, quite frankly, even though Moses was a great leader, Israel was kind of stuck under Moses' leadership. They, they, they just kind of... Pl- uh, yeah, you got any passages that talk about how Israel was stuck under Moses' leadership? As if the reason why the people of Israel died in the wilderness and spent 40 years in the wilderness is because of bad leadership on the part of Moses. According to the Bible that I read, the reason why they spent so many years in the wilderness is because of their unbelief. Plateaued and they kept wandering in the wilderness over and over and over and over and over again. And so Moses died. And the interesting thing that I find out is that nobody knew where the body of Moses was because probably the Israelites would have camped around their leader and stayed there and never progressed. Moses died and Joshua took over at this time when they couldn't go into their promised land. And under Joshua's leadership... Oh, whoa, that's weird language. When they, so Because they couldn't go into their promised land. That's a weird way of putting it. Israel claimed and inhabited their promised land. And so we're not talking about a Johnny-come-lately type of leader. We're not talking about somebody who is not an excellent leader. We're talking about somebody who, could, who was able to do stuff that Moses couldn't do. But as is always the case when you're claiming your promised land, there's a battle. As is always the case when you're claiming your promised land, there's a battle. Um, yeah, this we got a problem here. The Bible doesn't talk about anything about you claiming your promised lands. Now we've allegorized the text so that we can smuggle in any meaning we want into this biblical passage and completely ignore what it actually says. Isn't there? Matter of fact, it, turn to your neighbor and say this. If you're going through a battle, God's going to give you a promise. If you're going through a battle, God's going to give you a promise. Really? You got a Bible passage that says this? Because you had everyone turn to their neighbors and say, if God gives you a battle, he's going to give you a promise. Really? Where does the Bible say any of this? It's like you're just making stuff up and blaming it on God. This is what we call blasphemy. This is what it means to take God's name in vain, to basically teach, you know, basically ascribe God's name to your false teaching. Every time there's a promise, there is a battle before the promise. Your battles should be evidence that God is taking you somewhere. If you're not going through a battle, I can assure you that you're in no jeopardy of running into something amazing. Because nothing amazing, nothing impossible just happens. There's always a battle. In order for Joshua to claim his promised land, he had to experience many battles. And as we come to chapter number 10, we discover that there are five opposing Amorite armies that are planning to attack Joshua and Israel. So Joshua, being the great military genius that he was, he decides that he's going to strike first. And so what he does is he tells all of the armies of Israel to get their marching shoes on, and they are going to march from Gilgal to Gibeon, which is 25 miles. Most of us would have missed out on what God wanted to do because what God wants you to do takes some effort. Takes some, how many of you know marching 25 miles ain't easy? How many of you know marching 25 miles and then going right into battle is not even smart? Hello? 
How many of you would be tired after marching 25 miles? Anybody? How many of you want to nap after uh, marching 25 miles? How many would be ready to fight a war after marching 25 miles? Come on. And Joshua, though, he says, you know what? We've got to attack first. We're going to march. And so off they go. And on their march, God speaks something to Joshua in Joshua chapter 10, verse number 8. Here's what he says. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And what this verse tells me, first and foremost, is that it's okay to be afraid when God has called you to do something fantastic. You know, uh, audacious faith is not the absence of fear. Fearlessness is not even the absence of fear. Fearlessness is not allowing fear to stop you from trusting God. Notice what God told Joshua. He said, don't be afraid. Why? Because Joshua was about to go against a pretty formidable opponent. Five armies were about to attack Joshua. And then he says this, and this is what I love about God. He says, don't worry, don't fear, because I have given them. Does anybody else notice the past tense of God's words? God says, I have given them into your hand. The battle's not even been won yet. Isn't that amazing? See, we need to understand if we are going to have audacious faith, if we are going to be able to pray what we're calling sons. Um, yeah, it sounds to me like um, uh, Joshua didn't have audacious faith. It sounds like he had a sure and certain word from God. A sure and certain promise from God. God is true to his word. Doesn't sound like um, Joshua had anything. It's that he had this amazing God. Hmm. Stand still types of prayers. We have to realize that we serve a God who considers our battle that we're already facing to be won because he's already prearranged a victory. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's just presumptuous. That's presumptuous faith. That's not audacious faith. Uh, faith. Um, what I mean by that is uh, the scriptures make it clear in First John chapter 5 that if you pray anything according to his will, um, not any battle. See, you've allegorized the text, and the Bible does not teach that every battle you face that God has prearranged a victory for you. Um, in fact, you may suffer some serious defeats in your life. And uh, nowhere in the Bible does it promise that God's going to give you victory for every one of your battles. The Bible doesn't even say anything close to that. So this is an audacious faith. This is just presumptuousness. God said, I've given them into your hands. You don't have to worry about it, Joshua. This thing is as good as done. And then so Joshua, he marches down there, and right off the get-go, the battle is going great. The Israelite armies are just wiping out the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites decide that they're going to duck down this great big, you know, hill into this valley. And right about at that time, here's what the Bible says. In verse number 11, it says, As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Isn't that cool? Do you realize what God did? God Yeah, God did it. He's the, God's the one who won this battle. It sounds like uh, talk about a great and amazing God. God can do more in a moment of favor for us 
then we can do trying to do things all by ourselves. Absolutely true. But uh, here's the deal. You don't want to be presumptuous. Notice what happened. More died as God intervened, as God started fighting for them, than when they grabbed their own swords and did it. And I'll tell you what, I want to live my life where people look and say, you know what? God's got to be fighting for him. God's got, don't you want to live your life like that? People look and say, well, but, but it shouldn't have. That must be. What does that even mean? You want to live your life in such a way that people are going to say, oh, wow, God's fighting for him. What does that even look like? What are you talking about? I mean, God's fighting for them. I can't believe it. God's fighting for them. This, this should have turned out that way. God's fighting for them. We need to live our lives in such a way that God begins to fight for us. Whoa, whoa, yeah, that was all law. Did you catch that? That was quid pro quo talk. That's wage talk. We've got to live our lives in such a way that God wins the battles for us. Hmm. So apparently we can live our lives in such a way that God will then fight all of our battles for us because we've earned the right for God to fight and win all of our battles for us. Huh. That's not a gift. That's a wage. That's not a promise. That's something I earn. And when we exercise audacious, not puny, primitive you know, worn out, old, you know, ordinary type prayers. God yeah, and then the Bible doesn't talk about puny, ordinary, worn out, or old prayers. Nowhere are people chastised for their puny, worn out prayers. You know, praying for things like, give us this day our daily bread. Nope, he's just making this up. Actually, he learned it from Stephen Furtick. God begins to intervene in our lives. So here they are, God is intervening. It looks like they got this great battle, but they're escaping. The Gibeonites are going down this valley, and the Bible says, then the sun begins to go down. Now, why is that a problem? Because if the sun goes down, they're not going to be able to wipe out all the Gibeonites. Some of them are going to get away in the dark. The victory was not yet complete. God didn't tell Joshua, you know what? Just go ahead and beat the army and let them retreat. He said, not one of them will be able to stand against you. You know what? Uh, yeah, God promised that he would fight the battle for them and that none of them would be able to stand. So they had a sure and certain, unambiguous, direct promise from God. What that meant to Joshua? That meant God is going to give me complete victory. Yeah, who was? God was, right. Now, most of us, if we were in Joshua's shoes... We would have seen God do all this stuff and all these people dying by the hailstorm and, you know, us routing this particular army and the sun began to set and some of them begin to escape. And if we were like Joshua, most of us would have went, well, we did our best. That's good enough. I mean, think about it. I mean, we did route them after all. So what if a few of them get away? Most of us would have stopped before complete victory. Most of us would have stopped in a halfway testimony. Have you ever met people that give halfway testimonies? You know, they're believing God to do something, you know, real big, and God does a portion of it, and they accept that as it's finished. They, they that's good enough for me. You know, God did a little. Most of us, if we were in Joshua's shoes. I don't even know what you're talking about. Could you give me an example, please? We would have said, that's it. Okay, good enough, God. You did your job. But Joshua wasn't most of us. Joshua was operating in audacious faith, and he realized that when we've done all that we can do, see, Joshua couldn't do no more. 
The sun was going down. He couldn't fight in the dark. They didn't have, you know, these amazing, you know, ways to light up fields and stuff like that. He did all he could do. Joshua realized that when we operate in audacious faith, that when we've done everything that we can do, that's when God steps in and does the rest. Uh-huh. It sounds like the uh, Book of Mormon. We're saved by grace through faith after everything we can do. Yeah, I I don't see this as as the idea here. Um, God said that he had already given them into the hands of Israel. Who was the one who won the battle? Uh, God did. Um, and it's you just read the verses that talked about the fact that more of them fell because of God's, you know, the hail and all that kind of stuff than at the hands of the swords of Israel. Who was the one fighting for them? God was. Now you're making it sound like, well, they did everything they can, and then finally God stepped in. That's not how the story goes. And Joshua said, you know what, God? Something needs to happen here in order for us to fulfill your promise, God, which was not one of them will be able to stand against me. Look at verse number 12. In order for us to fulfill your promise? Um, boy, that's backwards. God is the only one who fulfills his promises. We don't fulfill God's promises. That's, that's crazy. Joshua decides to pray an unordinary prayer. Not a puny prayer, not a primitive prayer, not a small prayer, an unordinary prayer. Here's what he says, verse number 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord, in the presence of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ahajalon. Think about this. 13 audacious words that invited God to do the impossible. Joshua actually asked or had the audacity to ask God to make time stop for him. Hello, is there anybody out there? Uh, yeah, I'm challenging what you're saying here. So those words invited God to, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, you're inserting all of this stuff into the text. You're not actually telling us what the text says. You're completely mangling it and inserting things that are not there. Think about that. How many of us would have the audacity to say, God, I need you to stop time so I can finish this thing right now? Most of us would think, come on, Pastor, that's a stupid prayer. Why would you even ask God to do something like that? As if, you know what, the world revolves around us. Joshua asked God to do something that seemed absolutely preposterous. It was beyond crazy. But do you know what? Verse 13 says, so the, the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jasor, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Who, who was doing the... See, again, the story here is telling us about how God fought for Israel. What an amazing God they had. And keep in mind, that amazing God gave Joshua a 100% sure and certain, unambiguous promise. And who fulfilled it? 
God did. The skeptic in us cries out as we read that verse, ah, impossible. The scientist in us says, hmm, did that ever really happen in time? The doubter in us says, is that really what the Bible means, that the sun actually went down? Surely there's got to be some Hebrew twist to that that implies something else. I mean, the sun doesn't stop. The sun doesn't stand still. That can't happen. Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking a more relevant question when we come across verses like this. Yeah, what does the text really say rather than uh, what I want to insert into it? That would be a great question to answer. Could it be that God intends for us to have the same kind of audacious faith? Oh, brother. Uh, well, how come, if that's the case, then don't you think that there would be other passages that kept pointing to that event saying, you need to have that kind of audacious faith? That that would make sense, don't you think? The kind of faith that dares to believe him for the impossible as a normal way of life. I think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, what's funny is, is that I do believe God for the impossible because Jesus himself makes it clear that salvation is impossible for a man but with God all things are possible so I'm praying to God for the impossible for the forgiveness of my sins and for my salvation because because of my sin it is impossible for me to meet the requirements demanded by God for my own salvation. Same thing with you. You and I are in the same boat. It's the sin boat. Every day we sin against God daily and we sin against Him much in thought, word, and deed by the things we do and the things we don't do. It's impossible for you to meet the demands of God's law and thus be saved. And so if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation, you are trusting him for the impossible. And unlike what Frank Santora is doing here, basically saying that in your life you have battles and God's going to give you a promise, No, the promises of God for your salvation and for your forgiveness are recorded in Scripture in unambiguous and clear words. They are there for you, and they are there for you to trust, believe, and cling to, and God will make good his promise the same way he made good his promise that he had given the Gibeonites into into the hands of Joshua and and Israel that day. Our God keeps his promises, and he's promised your salvation because it is impossible for you to save yourself. If it were possible, then you wouldn't need Christ to have died for you. I think that's why it's in the Bible. I think it's in there so God can show us, look, if I did it for him, if I did the extraordinary for him, if I answered a prayer that seemed preposterous for him, if I did something that was impossible for him, I can do the same thing for you. And that's what God is calling us to do. 
God wants us to, he's begging us, ask him to do something beyond what is normal. Ask him to do something huge in your life. Yeah, I do. I've asked him to have mercy on me, a sinner. That's huge. And it's impossible if Christ hadn't died for my sins. Some of you are looking at me and saying, Pastor, well, God just doesn't do the impossible for me. I don't think God would even want to do the impossible for me. So what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time convincing you that no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what state of spirituality you might be at, that you qualify for a sun standstill moment in God's eyes. Mm, mm, I'm sure the qualifications, though, there will be strings attached. Matter of fact, the first qualification I want to share with you will shock you. And it will shock you because you and I have ascribed to the belief system that says if you make your bed, you ought to live in it. Don't we believe that? Don't we even tell that to our kids when they mess up? You make your bed, you have to deal with it. You know what? You do, that's just you. But how many of you know that the first qualification for people who uh, God wants to give a sun standstill moment for is those who have made a mistake and need God to bail them out? Those that have made a mistake and need God to bail them out. Oh, wait a second. So God's the God who bails people out who make mistakes. Hmm. The scriptures tell us that the God of the Bible is the God who forgives the sins of rebellious sinners. Hmm. Big difference. Big difference. This sounds almost like the gospel, but it's really a cheap substitute. Do you know why Joshua was fighting this battle against the Gibeonites? It's because Joshua made a mistake. Joshua was in a battle that he shouldn't have been in. He made a mistake. He made a bad alliance with the Gibeonites, and as a result of that alliance, had to stand by their side. Let me give you a couple of the details. Joshua was told by God to destroy anybody that lived close to him. Totally wipe them out. Anybody that lived far away, God told them to make a peace treaty with them. The Gibeonites who lived 25 miles away got wind of this. And so what they did is they pretended they came from far away and came to the camp of Israel. They wore worn out clothes, jacked up sandals. They even brought, the Bible says, dry and molding bread so it looked like they had been carrying it for a long time. And they got before Israel and Joshua and they said, look, we've come from a faraway land and we've heard about your God. We want you to make a peace treaty with us so that you won't destroy us. We want to be on your side. And they looked at the clothes and they looked at the worn out sandals and the dry bread and here's what they did. They said, okay, let's do it. Let's sign the peace treaty. Well, after a few days went by, they found out that the Gibeonites were their neighbors. But it was already too late. They had already made a peace treaty with them. And what happened was when you made a peace treaty in Bible times, not only did that mean you wouldn't attack that, that nation, but it also meant that you would protect them if somebody else attacked them. Gibeon is now 25 miles away, and guess who the five Amorite kings originally came to attack? The Gibeonites. The Gibeonites sent this word to Joshua. Joshua chapter 10, verse 6. Here's what it says. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgah. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. 
Here's what happened. They tricked Joshua into making a treaty with them. Joshua, though, in Bible days, your word was your word. If you gave your word and you found out later that you, you shouldn't have gave your word, you still had to honor your word anyway, even if you made an oath under false pre pretenses. And so now Joshua is sucked into fighting this battle with the Gibeonites that he shouldn't be fighting. Now you say, Pastor, well, why is that a mistake? Well, the reason why is found in chapter 9, verse 14. Look at it with me. Chapter 9, verse 14. It says, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. Can anybody relate to getting in a heap of mess because you didn't consult with God first? Anybody like that out there? Can anybody relate to, to making a mistake because you relied too much on external appearances? Can anybody relate to making a mistake because you've invested too much trust in a particular individual? Can anybody relate to making a mistake where you got into something because you failed to inquire of the Lord? You made a mistake and now you need God to bail you out. Has anybody ever done that in life? You are aware that God's presence was there in the camp with Israel and um, they could just inquire of him and he would tell them rather quickly because he was there. Um, yeah, huh. Has anybody ever done something wrong? And you think... Yeah, you mean like sin. Gee, God, I don't know if there's any way out. That's the situation Joshua was in. Maybe for you, God, I, I've racked up this debt. I did it all on my own, God. But, but I really need you to get me out of this thing. God, I married him. Don't look at him right now, that would be bad. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Just look at me. God, I married him, and things aren't going real good right now, but God, I need you to change the marriage situation. God, I haven't been the parent I should be. Now my kid doesn't want to have anything to do with you, and God, I need you to fix that. God, I need you to intervene and turn the situation around. God, I've pursued... So you basically are expecting God to make up for 18 years of bad parenting just because you had the audacity to pray for him to turn everything around. Oh, boy. Money as, as my goal in life for such a long time. And I'm empty inside, and now I need you to fix that and give me real purpose and give me real value. See, I think we've all encountered those times where we've made a mistake and we need God to bail us out. Here's the good news. Yeah, listen, it goes way beyond the... the um, <clears throat> Um, small, little insignificant mistake category. Um, listen, I, I was born dead in trespasses and sins. And from like my earliest childhood and my earliest memories, I have been really skilled at sinning, like really good at it. Um, and you know, it's for whatever reason, my parents didn't have to teach me how to be bad. I, I seem to have like started off just knowing how to be bad. It was the being good thing that, yeah, they had to kind of beat that into me. They didn't actually beat me, but uh, you get what I'm saying here? So um, I've got a big problem because when I look at God's word and I look at the Ten Commandments and what God has demanded of me, you know, boil it all down to love God and love neighbor, um, and I look at my life and I look at the wreckage that I've um, 
left in my wake as a result of my sin and my rebellion against God. Um, yeah, this is not just the uh, occasional boo-boo. Um, this is not just the occasional whoopsie. You know, this is flat out, I knew what the right thing to do was, and I did the wrong thing. And as a result of it, when I look at God's word, um, uh, yeah, I've earned an eternity in hell. You got anything for that? Because um, I'm thinking that a sun stand still prayer probably would not come in handy here. Guess what God did for Joshua? He bailed him out. He fought for him in a war that Joshua shouldn't have been in if Joshua would have inquired of the Lord. If Joshua would have said, God, should we make this peace treaty with these Gibeonites? God would have said, they're lying to you. That's moldy bread because they planned it that way. They put on them ripped jeans. They put on them jacked up the sandals. They're trying to trick you. But Joshua failed to do the simple thing that you and I fail to do all the time. Ask God how we should deal with the situation. Mm, yeah. Um, boy, you know, this kind of points to God's mercy. You might want to bring the cross in here because the answer to my problem is that God, well, it was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And for my salvation, died on the cross, bled and died as my substitute. He was pierced for my transgressions and bruised for my iniquities. He completely bailed me out of hell. That's so much bigger than any temporal little problem that I might run into as a result of a mistake or a bad decision or failing to consult God. But here's what I want you to see about God. God still gives sun standstill moments to those who have made mistakes and need God to bail them out. I mean, I don't know about you, but that just encourages me. Because I'm, maybe I'm a little bit... Yeah, it sounds like a counterfeit gospel to me. More flawed than you are. Maybe I'm a little bit more prone to those things than you are. But I know this, that when I saw that, I nearly just lit. I said, that's you, God. God, you can turn any mess into a miracle. Second thing I want you to see is that God gives sun standstill moments to those who dare to pray without safety nets. There's a little detail that kind of just struck me, and I was like, you're a crazy man, Joshua, when I saw this. Verse number 12, look at this with So me. apparently, uh, in order for this, the sun standstill prayer to really be worth it, you've got to pray without a safety net. Yeah, I've never seen that command in Scripture anywhere. Talk about eisegesis here. We read it already. On the day that the Lord gave the Amorites over to, to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord, in the presence of Israel, sun stands still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ahazelon. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this just kind of like made me think Joshua was a crazy person. This is not something that you just, you know, just, just blurt out in front of people. Because the chances of this happening are pretty remote. I mean, if I'm going to pray a prayer like that, I'm going to mumble it underneath my breath. 
God made the sun stand still. And then true. And the reason why I'm going to mumble it is for two reasons. The first reason is so that if it does happen, I could take credit for it. I prayed and God did it. You know, that's what we all like. But the second and more important reason why I'm going to mumble it is because when it doesn't happen, it's just between me and God. Nobody thinks what a fool this guy is. You see, if this didn't happen, we're not reading the book of Joshua. We're reading the book of Joshua's nephew who took over for Joshua after his uncle started barking at the sun one day and wound up in the loony bin. I mean, this is not, this is not something that you just go out there and no holds barred. God! Sun stand still. This is amazing. This is a prayer without a safety net. You know how you and I pray those kind of safety net prayers? You know what they look like, don't you? The prayers that end with the, if it be thy will, Lord. Man. So apparently, that, if you pray you know, a prayer and you ask God, if it be your will, that's a safety net prayer, and that's not an audacious prayer, and God's going to sit there and really be insulted by it. By the way, I can prove this guy wrong. <clears throat> Would you like to see what the Apostle Peter did? Watch this. If you got your Bible, flip on over to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Book of Acts, chapter 9, starting at verse 36. We read, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they, they took him to an upper room. All the, windows stood beside him, all the widows stood beside him, and they were weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Did you catch that? Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Uh-oh, it sounds like Peter here is praying with a safety net. So that that way, if she doesn't rise from the dead, then they don't, then, then you know, you get what I'm saying here. So Peter prayed this in the presence of nobody. Because he put them all out. Hmm, wonder why he did that. You see, the text doesn't really say, though. See, the thing is, is that the text doesn't say any of the stuff that Frank Santora is preaching either. He's completely eisegeting, allegorizing, taking out of context, which is what he learned to do from Stephen Furtick's book, Sun Stand Still. But here, I mean, using his eisegetical techniques, I can come up to the I can come up with the conclusion that here, Peter, he he prayed with a safety net for Dorcas to come back to life. Now because he prayed with a safety net, was God um, displeased with Peter? And go, oh my goodness, I can't believe you prayed with a safety net. Yeah, well, let me read the rest of the story. So Peter put them all out, knelt down, prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, I wonder why we don't pray a bunch of Tabitha, arise prayers. Anyway, Tabitha, arise, she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, 
and many believed in the Lord. Maybe the reason why we don't have a book out there about Tabitha Arise prayers is because, well, Peter prayed with a safety net, obviously showing he was hedging on his audacity. And yet, God heard him and answered the prayer. Maybe it has nothing to do with audacious faith. Maybe it has to do with a faithful, loving, kind, merciful, powerful God. The safety net prayers. God, I, I got cancer and I need you to hear me of, heal me of cancer if it be thy will. God, I, I need a new job, a good one too, God. I don't want no jacked up job. I want a good job if it be thy will. And, 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 and I just don't get that whole thing. Now, I assume that what we mean is that we want to submit ourselves to the will of God. But I think that what we're doing most of the time when we pray that is giving God a cop-out clause. Really, because, you know, the Apostle John, who actually spent some time with Jesus, made it clear that when we pray according to his will, that's when he hears us and answers our prayers. Um, see, that means that God is sovereign, God's in control, he has a will, and it's his will. So if you pray, God, I have cancer, will you heal me? God will answer that prayer by healing you if it is his will. If it is not your will, pack your bags, you're on your way to meet God. Get your affairs in order because you're soon to die. And that's God's will for you and there's nothing you're going to do to stop it. So when you pray, your will be done, see, that's what we pray. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy, whose will? His will. So apparently you don't understand the concept of God being in control, and we need to be praying things in accord with his will, and that if we don't and we ask a petition contrary to his will, his answer is going to be no. Yeah, it sounds like you're praying, my kingdom come, my will be done. Is that how you would prefer to pray and make God basically subject to your every beck and call? As if God needs one. If God is going, thanks, thanks for adding that little tagline onto there, because that one was tough right there. I didn't know how I was going to muster up enough power and enough majesty to be able to handle that one there. So I'm glad you said, if it be thy will, because now the pressure's kind of off. Talk about an adventure and missing the point. I want you to notice that Joshua didn't say, God, uh, son, stand still, if it be thy will, God. See, he, he didn't need to. And I'll tell you why. Because God had already promised that he would give the, these kings and that other army into, his, into the hands of Israel. So when he was praying, son, stand still, or saying to the son to stand still, that was what was necessary at the time in order for God's promise to be fulfilled. So he, it was all about what God had promised already. So he already knew it was God's will that that army would not get away and that they'd all be taken. They'd all be dead. And at that moment, the only way that would have been possible is if the sun didn't go down. So he already knew what God's will was. 
That's why the sun stood still, because it was God's will. He had already said clearly what his will was to give those kings, I think they're Amorites, into the hands of Israel. Sun stand still moments happen for those people who are willing to pray without a safety net. And no passage of scripture says anything like this. You are eisegeting. Doesn't need you to add a tagline onto your prayer. Matter of fact, I think it just annoys God. And you're saying that without a single passage that says that. So apparently now you're speaking, you're now God's spokesman without a single word from God that says anything of the sort that if you pray according to, you know, say, Lord, if it be your will. And yet in the Lord's prayer, Jesus said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, and you're saying that this annoys God. So Jesus's prayer that he taught us annoys God. Apparently he knows better than Jesus does what makes God happy and what annoys him. Unbelievable. I think it's insulting to God. Dad, can you buy me some fries if you're kind of able to? You, you're serious. If I'm able to cough out a dollar to buy you some fries, I can't give you, are you, are you trying to say that I'm not able to give you a dollar? That's what we're saying when we say to God, God, somehow, some way, you know, we, we kind of feel like, you know, this might be too big. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that if we ask anything, 1 John 5, 14, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. If you ask according to God's will, you don't need an opt-out clause on the end of your prayer. Well, that would assume that you already know perfectly what God's will is, doesn't it? Yeah, and the last time I checked, I have got no way of knowing perfectly what God's will is. I can tell you what God's will is in certain things because he's revealed it in his word. But on the day-to-day, hmm, yeah, that means me walking by faith, not by sight, and putting my petitions before the Lord and trusting and waiting for him. Matter of fact, it shows the ignorance behind your prayer. Yeah, so it's ignorance to humbly ask God for things according to his will and then wait for, oh, wow, unbelievable. How do you know what God's will is, Pastor? I, I mean, that's why I pray. I really don't know what God's will is. Here's the will of God right here. Every promise in this Bible, it is. Yeah, that's great that you're pointing to the Bible, but uh, yeah, that doesn't say nothing as far as what you're talking about here. Because remember the examples that you gave, the uh, the marriage that's gone kaput, the ill, uh, the basically the disobedient children, or that great job that you want. Where in the Bible does it say anything about um, you, God wanting, and you can say with certainty that it's His will that you have a great job? Hmm. Is the will. Of God. How do I know that? Because the Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen. All the promises. That will you know, show to me that it's God has promised me that he wants to give me. He, uh, you know, every, anytime I would come down with cancer, he wants to give. It's his will to cure me right there on the spot. That any, if, I, if I have disobedient children, he wants to miraculously make them obedient. 
If I have a lousy job, God, it's his will, always. It's his, it's his promise that he wants to give me a great job. Did you notice that the Bible never said any of the promises of God are no? Did you notice that? But yet our theology along the way has somehow come up with this idea that sometimes God says no to a promise. God may say you need to wait because you're not ready for the promise, but God can't say no to his promise. If God promises it, God has to deliver it. It says he watches over his word, waiting to perform it in our life. He's begging us, will you just ask me to do it? Will you just ask me to do it? And I believe that as Joshua was contemplating, should, should, I, should I go bold? Should I go big or go home? Should I, should I pray it? Should I say it? Should I say it both? Should I say it with authority and power? God was going, go ahead, ask me. I dare you. He, he's isogeting at this point. This exchange is not actually in the text. I double dare you. I dare you to ask me to keep that son still. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. And he does it, and God does the impossible. God gives son stand still moments to people who don't pray with safety nets. Number three. God gives standstill moments to those whose hearts are fully devoted to God. Mm. <laughs> well, good luck on that one. Um, yeah, uh, fully devoted to God. That would mean that you've stopped sinning 100% and completely, and you're now sinless and perfect. Why? Because every single sin that you commit proves objectively that you are not fully devoted to God. Have you ever not been sure whether your prayer has been right? Has anybody ever kind of, I don't know if that was the right kind of, kind of prayer. Do you know Joshua prayed the wrong prayer? Do you know that his prayer was completely wrong in every single way? Prayer was wrong. How do I know that? Because we know that indeed the earth moves around the sun, don't we? Sun don't move around the earth. Sun stays still. So he said to God, God, Make the sun stand still. Stupid prayer. Ignorant prayer. Wrong prayer. Sun don't have to stand still. The earth needed to stand still. He play, prayed the exact opposite of what he should have prayed. But guess what God did? God answered the prayer anyway. That makes me feel good. The reason why that makes me feel good is because sometimes I, I, I don't know how I ought to pray. Sometimes I don't know if I got the prayer exactly right. Sometimes I, I don't know if I, if I put all the words together the right way. But how do I know that God will read my heart even though my prayer may be wrong if my heart is fully devoted to him? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And Jesus pointed out the fact that out of the heart comes all kinds of vile and wicked things murder and adultery and stuff like that all of your sin has its origin in your heart so do you think if god looked inside of your heart that he'd sit there and go oh wow look at all of that righteousness and all of that full devotion to me or would you have to be honest and say yeah i sin every day and according to god's word it's out of the heart that sin is birthed and every day I'm birthing sin, and it comes out of my heart. So apparently now, sun stand still prayers really are not possible. And by the way, this is a formula for um, self-deception, and as well as complete 
losing of your faith in Christ. What I mean, here's the reason why. Okay, so here's the deal. Okay, you think to yourself, I'm going to be audacious and I'm going to pray for the impossible. I'm not going to pray for the ordinary. I'm going to pray for the extraordinary. And so what happens? You get a report from your doctor that says you've got pancreatic cancer. And this is not the operable kind. It's not curable. You're going to be dead in six months. So you think, okay, I'm now going to fully devote myself to God and I'm going to show him that I've earned the right to pray big and to pray bold. And I'm going, and so I pray, cancer, be gone. In sun stand still fashion, if you would. Ta-da! See, because I've... And see, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Yes and amen. And then a week later, you go back to the doctor, fully expecting that the doctor's going to sit there and, you know, pull up his charts after running the battery of tests on you, and he's going to come rushing in the door and go, I've never seen anything like this. It's a miracle there isn't a single trace of cancer inside of your body. I've, I, I'm going to have to write this down and send your chart into the American Medical Association to tell them that, that miracles are, how did this be, how did this come about? And you'd sit there, you know, you, you, you think, you think about the movie, uh, you know, uh, a Christmas story, you know, Ralphie, you know, his, his family doting on him and you, and you're sitting there, oh, it's all because I fully devoted myself to God. And after my full devotion, God looked down into my heart and went, oh, look at all of that devotion. Oh, he's got so much devotion. I have got to reward that. But I'm waiting. I'm just waiting for him to, to tap me in the, on the hand and ask me to come and do something big. And, and so... God finally is sitting out on the sidelines just waiting, 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 waiting. And all of a sudden you have the audacity to ask God for the big thing. And you say, cancer be gone. And God goes, oh, thank you. Thank you for letting me come in and do the big and bold and audacious. That's what you expect, right? <clears throat> well, that the, the doctor doesn't come rushing into the, <clears throat> into the, uh, into the examination room with anything, any news of the sort. no. Doctor comes in and says, you know, I'm sorry. This is worse than I thought. I thought you had six months. You maybe have two months tops. You really need to get your affairs in order. And uh, I, here's 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 some um, some phone numbers for some really good hospice care because you're gonna you're gonna need this as you get closer to the end. And what's gonna happen to you when that happens to you? You're going to blame yourself. Obviously, you didn't have audacious enough faith. Obviously, God didn't look inside of your heart and think that you were devoted enough. And you're going to despair. Despair to the point where you probably don't even have anything to do with God as you are approaching the last minutes of your life. Blaming yourself. Because... You've been taught wrong about God and His will and God and His promises. So getting ready to leave this planet, 
breathe your last breaths, ye, that you are spent in terror, knowing that you're going to have to stand before God and you're going to feel like you were just not worthy enough. Rather than being comforted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news that even in your hour of death, Christ is there for you. That when you breathe your last and your eyes no longer see and the cancer has its way, the first person you're going to see is your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, come to take you to heaven. And you can know that because God has promised that. Your God bled and died for your sins. Repent and be forgiven. And rest in that hope and that trust. So that as your dying day comes, even when the, the medical prognosis is that you're going to be dead, it's not because... It's not because God is punishing you or that you're somehow unworthy or not fully devoted. Your God is still fully devoted to you. Your Jesus bled, died, and rose for you. He's conquered death, and he's promised that you will not even taste death. He'll be there ready to take you home on the day you breathe your last. And you don't have to worry about having audacious enough faith. Because you will pray for God to heal you. But in the scenario that I've given you, which is a common one, God's answer is going to be no. It will not be His will to miraculously heal you of your cancer but instead to call you home. But what this man is praying, what this man is teaching, is the kind of stuff that destroys faith and trust in Christ. Or worse, creates arrogance and pharisaical works righteousness pride. Somehow the things are going right in your life because you've earned them. And you haven't, because God doesn't give gifts as a wage. See, if the purpose of my prayer is to see God glorified, if the purpose of my son stand still moment is so that God can shine, then I know my heart is fully devoted to God and that God's going to... If my, if my, if my, if... Yeah, that's all law talk. Not only that, he's watering down the law. As if the only thing that matters is motive. <laughs> Those of you who think that you can ever do a good work with pure motives, go ahead and try. Yeah, the reality is you're going to find out that uh, your good works need to be forgiven every bit as much as your sins. Sift through my ignorance and give me that answer. How do I know this? Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. In other words, God is looking. Would somebody please, can I get, can I get somebody? Just one person. 
Look over here. I gotta get one. Is there one? Is there one? Is there one? This is just bad theology, no matter how you slice it. One over here. Is there one of a? His eyes are running through the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart is fully loyal or devoted to him. And notice what the in-between part says: to show himself strong through. Yeah, and I would counter this uh, with a clear passage from, uh, really, from uh, Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 3. Uh, it is real simple. I mean, so he's basically saying God's just looking for somebody who's fully devoted. Uh, well, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 9. Well, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before your, their eyes. So that Chronicles passage that he's quoting, there's only one person that, that God has ever looked to and found somebody who was fully devoted to him. And that would be Jesus. It ain't you, and it certainly ain't me. There's only one. Jesus. Who's God want to show himself strong through? Those people whose heart is sold out to him. And there's only one. And that was Jesus. And he showed himself strong through Jesus, didn't he? Those people whose heart says, God, I, I want this because, God, this is what you said. And, God, this is what you promised. And, God, I want my life to be a light for you. God, help me to glorify you in every way. God gives sun stand still moments to those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. And lastly tonight, God gives sun stand still moments to those who are willing to practice ordinary obedience. Ordinary obedience. Mm, so you earn these sun stand still prayers or the right to have them fulfilled because of your obedience. Well, then you'll never earn a sun stand still prayer. By the way, ordinary obedience is the test as to whether your heart is fully devoted to God. And if you're honest and you look at God's law, then you realize you fail that test every minute of every day of your life. If you can't obey God in the ordinary, your heart is not fully devoted to God. That's right. That's absolutely true, and that's why you need a Savior. Ordinary obedience. I think when we look through the Scripture... One of the things that everybody would agree about, whether or not they believe that they actually happened or not, is that the Scripture is filled with extraordinary miracles. I mean, things that are absolutely mind-blowing in every way. For instance, Peter walks on water. That's extraordinary. Jesus feeds... Now, watch who he puts the emphasis on here. All these miracles that happened because of what? Listen to this. It's 5,000 with five little crackers and two small fish. 5,000 families, that is. That's extraordinary. Jesus heals a paralytic man who is lowered through a roof by his friends. That's extraordinary. Jesus turns water into wine. 
Extraordinary. God parts the Red Sea for Moses. Extraordinary. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush. Extraordinary. These are all amazing things. But what if Peter never obeyed the ordinary instruction of Jesus? So watch who gets, was to watch who gets all the glory for these miracles. Watch who gets the glory. It's not God. Step out of the boat. See, that, that, that's not ordinary. Sure it is. Can everybody take a step out of a boat? See, but pastor, he can't walk on water. God didn't ask him to walk on the water. God asked him to take an ordinary step. And when he did the ordinary, God promised to do the extraordinary. But what if Peter never did the ordinary? What if that little boy never did the ordinary thing of giving his lunch to Jesus? The five crackers and the, the two little fish. What if he never did that? That miracle would have never happened. Why? Everybody can sacrifice a meal for Jesus, can't they? Everybody can go without... So apparently God can't do miracles until you demonstrate ordinary obedience. So in other words, you are the one getting all the glory and the credit for the miracle. Lunch for Jesus. That's an ordinary thing. What if the paralyzed man's man friends didn't obey the ordinary prompting of God which was to be inconvenienced in their day and sacrifice by carrying their friend. Anybody can be inconvenienced in a day. Anybody can do something helpful to somebody else. But what if they didn't obey the ordinary? What if the people at the wedding party didn't obey the ordinary instruction by Jesus to take the wineskins and fill them with water. Can everybody put water in a bucket? Is there anybody who can't put water in a bucket? Now, what if they didn't put the water in the bucket? That miracle would have never happened. What if Moses didn't obey the ordinary instruction to take his staff and point it toward the Red Sea? Do you think you'd be capable of picking up a stick and pointing it? Can anybody do that? Can anybody pick it? You say, Pastor, you know what? That might not, that, I think I can handle that one, Pastor. I mean, you all ask us to do a lot around here, but picking up a stick and pointing, I can do that. Can anybody pick up a stick and point? Anybody? Nobody can pick up a stick and point? What if Moses didn't pick up the stick and point? That, that extraordinary miracle wouldn't have happened. Here's my last one. What if Moses didn't obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go and look and see what was happening to the bush? Got any curious Georges in here? Some people that just might be able to stick their nose into something and see what's going on. I know we got people like that in church now. Come on. And can anybody just be a curious George? Isn't that an ordinary act of obedience? And see, here's what I know about, about the Bible. When you strip away all the special effects from the miracles, a plot emerges that is absolutely brilliant. Extraordinary moves of God begin with ordinary acts of obedience. All right, let's try the ordinary acts of obedience. Here we go. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. How you doing on that one? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Um, yeah, um, um, Pastor Sent, I'm sorry, Fuhrer Centora here is 
completely biffed that one all throughout this sermon. Um, Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Yeah, he's biffed it there. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How you doing on that? That seems pretty common, pretty ordinary. How you, how you doing on those Ten Commandments? You keeping them perfectly yet? Well, let's just boil them down to two. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so how you doing on the ordinary obedience thing? Have you earned those sun stand still prayers yet? You know what? You are just one ordinary act of obedience away from a sun stand still moment. That's all you are. One little ordinary act. The ordinary act of serving in ministry. Anybody can do that. And you serve in ministry. Just so happens that somebody else is serving in ministry. That just so happens to be able to open up a door for you to give you that job that you've been praying for. And the way that that job comes is to an ordinary act. Serving in ministry. You're just one ordinary act away from the wisdom that you need. Mm, So all you got to do is uh, serve at the church and that ordinary act will earn you a sun stand still prayer as a wage to overcome that problem you've been facing. The ordinary act of making church attendance not a once a month commitment, but a weekly commitment. The ordinary act of showing up in the house of God on a weekly basis, and all of a sudden you come when you should have or could have went somebody else, somewhere else, and God gives you the exact wisdom that you need for that problem. The ordinary act of being generous with your finances And God all of a sudden provides for you more than you need for your family. The ordinary act of giving up your second job so that you can be home with your kids and God does the extraordinary thing of raising a Joshua in your home. You're just one ordinary act away from a sun stand still moment. Certainly wonder why the scriptures. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you, you just, you know, one ordinary act and then you can earn a sun stand still moment. Wow. Just says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Friends, it, it's really not that complicated. It's really quite simple. <laughs> yeah. It, well, if it was so simple, then why were you breaking the second commandment throughout this whole sermon? Hmm. God wants to give you a sun standstill moment. Really, you got any verses that say that? Every single person in this room qualifies for a sun standstill. None of those things that I just shared with you are beyond the grasp of anyone. But are they outside of the realm of what we're willing to do? That's the question. And I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Go big or go home. Do something for God that is absolutely amazing. And it begins with these simple steps that everybody can do. You're one ordinary act away from it. Just, it's so simple. You, all you got to do is just ordinarily obey. Oh, and tithe. Yeah, that, that's, that's just do the ordinary thing and then you can earn a sun stand still prayer. An extraordinary move of God. Would you stand on your feet?
No, I'm not going to let you pray for us. Um, yeah. Um, see, here's the deal. Um, yeah. Um, the Bible tells us about the things that God has done for us and the promises that he's attached to what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Jesus didn't just create the world and cause the sun to stand still from our perspective here on earth. Um, I think of the ultimate um, uh, moment, if you would, the one regarding the sun that's worth noting. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 32. I begin. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene by name, and they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened when our Lord was crucified. This is the real miracle that's taking place right here. The sun was darkened. Rather than light, it was darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the curtain, the temple, was torn two from top to bottom the earth shook the rocks were split the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went to the holy city and appeared to many when the centurions and those who were with him keeping watch over jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said truly this was the son of god Sun stand still, then hold a candle to what happened to the sun on the day when Jesus was crucified for your sins and mine. Your real problem is, is that you're a sinner, born dead in trespasses and sins and rebellion against God. 
God has done more than caused the sun to stand still. He caused it to be darkened. While your sins were laid upon the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. There was darkness over the land from the sixth hour until the ninth. As the sun even couldn't look upon what was happening to the Son of God. Because your sin was there on him on that day. And he did this not because you were audacious, not because you looked inside of your heart and saw, oh, that you were fully devoted to him. The scripture says that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the powerless, the sinner. You had no devotion to offer to God. You had nothing to give him. You had earned death, his wrath, and an eternal hell. And there Jesus is bleeding and dying on your behalf. And the sun is darkened. Don't tell me about sun standing still. Tell me about this. And what Jesus did for me. Because I know I'm not fully devoted. I know I'm not worthy. And I know I haven't got a snowball's chance of making it into eternal life if any of it depends upon me. And you're in the same boat as I am. Which is the better miracle? The sun being darkened while your sins are being propitiated? You bet it is. Sad that we didn't hear anything about that. Instead, just a bunch of empty promises based upon your fulfilling of the law and you earning them from God. And when things don't go right for you in your life, he'll just say you weren't fully devoted enough. And he'd be right, because you're not. But God gives us his grace and his mercy and cares for us as a gift out of his kindness and grace. Didn't hear anything about that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly do depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, uh, you visit our website and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins the day that the sun was darkened. Amen. Amen.